You're listening to Historical AF, or if you cuss like we do, Historical As Fuck. This is your melting historian, Kina. <laughs> and I am your anxious librarian, Ashley. We're here to deliver the funny, weird, spooky, morbid, and random historical nuggets you never knew you needed. <laughs> Welcome to uh, episode 13. Unlike last episode when I said the wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we didn't realize it until after like editing took place. Yeah, and at the point I was Oops. just like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we went all in, whatever. So yeah, episode 13, welcome, welcome. I mean, we did say the right number at the end of last episode, so I think it fixed itself. We're fine. It was probably right in the title, so y'all get the gist. <laughs> We're okay. Everything's fine. What day fine. is it? It's fine. I don't know. I don't know. I At this point, like, summer is just one giant day, and I can't feel my face because it's yeah. melted off. <laughs> Wait till you get to Texas. It's oh fucking hot. Yes. So we had talked about last week that we both had job interviews. So how did yours go? Oh, my gosh, guys. So I think I mentioned that it was, like, this whole ordeal. So I had to do a interactive tour where I had to take them into the museum and take do two different collections and do like a tour with a theme and then the other half was create a program I apparently overthinked it because they were like you're you're good (laughs) I was like I I don't know what the budget is and I don't know who your sponsors are and I don't know like what the corporate discounts are so I'm like the budget's really high but it'll be lower and they were like okay you know what you're talking about Uh, But for my interactive tour, I took them, one, into the Egyptian exhibit to do the Akhenaten (laughs) tablets. So I made an alien joke. I'm not sure if it landed or not because didn't quite get the laughs I was hoping for. But then I took them into the American exhibit and did a painting and then slipped in some Ben Franklin, Charles Wilson Peel knowledge. So all podcast related subjects crushed it. Yeah. So I should know in like two or three weeks they had... They're actually in Arkansas this week at Crystal Bridges. So, and then next week they have a couple of more interviews and then I'll find out. So, yay. You're going to nail it. I know it was so amazing. I guarantee it. And I mean, shocker. I talked a little fast, but I mean, it's kind of on brand for me at this point. Yeah. Uh, sorry. The husband just brought me the oatmeal cream pie I requested. <laughs> I have curbside service up here. <laughs> And now the dog is trying to figure out if he wants to go down the stairs or not. Life, life, life. Yeah, I think I did really well. I think it's a plus in my favor that they are at Crystal Ridges with people that know me. So I hope that I'm in their head all week. And then uh, I should find out. But I'm really excited. And I really hope I get the job. Anyway, how was your job interview? My job interview was really, really good. They, oh my God, they were so nice. They booked me a B&B to stay in, which I shared on our podcast pages because it was such a gorgeous place. and It was such a cool historical site. Mm-hmm. And it was the longest job interview of my life. I was there from like 8.30 in the morning to like 1.30 in the afternoon. That was fun, but it was really exciting and I desperately want that job but I'm just waiting to hear back from them now and that's why I'm so anxious because anxiety and (sighs) I'm just every day I get a little more anxious just waiting to hear but I really loved it and I really really want to go down there and live there and I found a really cute house that I want to live in that's for sale so we will see 
It is very adorable. I can uh, confirm. I saw a picture. Yes, I like creepily took pictures of it as I drove by it while I was there. And then I found it on <laughs> Zillow and was like, oh, my God, now I can see the inside of it. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's very adorable. I'm very, uh, I'm very optimistic. I was one of her references and I, I have a good feeling. Yes. About it. So, yeah. Plus, the first thing we both did was Google how far New Orleans is from Shreveport and San Antonio. So. Yes. Yes, we have already planned out. Yeah, because if I get this job, I will be moving to Shreveport. And I loved it down there. And I really want to go to New Orleans if I move down there. But not while they're having a apparent hurricane. Jesus Christ. That's like all the time. Yeah, true. Very true. They're hardy people. They are. Good on you, New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really excited. We can do some podcasts from Louisiana. I, I love... Listen, the United States is a baby. Like, we're so young. Yes, so yeah. I am drawn to cities that are older, which I think is fun because I know that I've talked about things being like 300 plus years old in Texas. And some people I know were like, um, the United States not even that old. I'm like, I know. That's why I like it. <laughs> like, yeah. You're older than the United States. So, right. Yeah. 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 I felt like so fancy being like, yeah, my house that I bought was built in the 1940s. And people are like, really? That's I mean, my house was born built in like the 1860s. So <laughs> I'm like, great. Thanks to one up me. Thanks for house shaming me. <laughs> yeah. No, I love old towns. I've never been to New Orleans and I'm desperately trying to go. Same. We were supposed to go for Christmas, I guess two years ago but then i had to buy a car and that kind of like we're like hey i probably shouldn't but damn adulthood i know but christmas everything's cheaper and then it's mm-hmm. like less tourists Ugh, i need to go there's so much there's like voodoo shit and ghosts and vampires and history oh my god i just I yeah we may definitely need to take like a girl's christmas trip yeah well i know one of my really good friends who's a patreon member they're talking about going for uh, her bachelorette parties, so oh cool. Although I think they want to go in October, and New Orleans is insane in October because of like the Anne Rice vampire party thing and all that. Yeah, all vampire that masquerade, and I think Hex Fest is also that month. If you can't tell, I'm obsessed with things in uh, New Orleans. Ugh, I wanted to go to that so bad when the Foo Fighters were there. Yeah, I would have. I would have sold the kidney. <laughs> like, legit yep. black market. Organs, which leads us to this week's episode theme. Medical history. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. This is something that I'm, like, super fascinated with. So I'm really, really excited. I'm going to give a disclaimer to my mother. I am sorry in advance. Shit is going to get weird and oddly sexual. I am sorry. (laughs) And I don't have to apologize to my parents because they don't listen. (laughs) like her number one supporter i love her so much she is i love her she uh she was here last week and then she's like i didn't get a chance to listen to your podcast and i'm like mom you were here like it's okay yeah (laughs) we're on vacation yeah yeah and i could hear her she was in so we always joke we have a guest room in an office and it's on the other side of the house we can't really hear anything we call it the west wing or whatever but i could hear my cackle and i was like (laughs) who's listening to the podcast (laughs) (laughs) and mom's like it's me she listens to us as she goes to sleep which for some of our topics is probably not great for the dreams 
That and like, let's be real. I don't really have an ASMR voice like the ladies over at Cheers from the Grave. Oh my god, I was. They're like voices are like butter, just so smooth. Real oh. talk. Sometimes I try to like practice my voice so I can sound <laughs> like ASMR like they do, but it, that's just not me. Let's be real, y'all. I have understood from the beginning that my cackle and my voice is not soothing, but yeah, I'm just sorry. running with it at this point. So sorry, guys. But yeah, I um. So my mom has worked in a hospital setting since I was four and I will be 31 this year. So long damn time. And a majority of my family has worked at the same hospital and growing up, I wanted to be a doctor. Somehow I ended up as a librarian, figure that out. So (laughs) I like always have been fascinated by medical history stuff. So I was really pumped when we chose this topic. There are medical librarians and archivists. Oh, yeah, I definitely that's one of the jobs I applied for was a medical librarian here in Arkansas. And um, we will see where I end up. Oh, I knew somebody that worked at Baptist Hospital as an archivist. Really? Yeah, she had to move, though. So that job should be open. That's good to know. Also, I Uh, hope you can't hear me chew my oatmeal cream pie. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. I'm snacking. I'm back on a diet. Yay. Yay, me. Yay, diets. So, so want to roll to see who goes first? Yes. This was oh, my God. I know I say it every episode how excited I am, but I am so fucking excited. <laughs> Dude, Woo! the hints you've given me about your topic make me, like, I know this is going to be a good episode. Oh, they're so delightfully bad. I'm thankful yours are raunchy because all of mine are a downer. So, let's do this. Oh, yeah, mine are all pretty funny. I'm really excited. All right. Good. If it's spooky again, these dice are... Random! Woohoo, that's me! Sorry, I have to finish chewing, so I'm sorry. (laughs) God damn it, Ashley. (laughs) I know, fucking amateur hour over here. Okay, so I rolled random this week, and Kina gave me the word demon, which... (laughs) Your girl is fascinated with demons. Like, if I... The thing I thought of was, like, epileptics, demons. Yes, yes. Like, if I don't end up possessed by a demon in my lifetime, I will have done something wrong. Because I am always meddling in shit I should not be. You shut your whore mouth. Don't put that into my house. (laughs) (laughs) I'm bringing it with me tomorrow. Yeah. We all know how I feel about demons. I do not tempt that shit. Well, and like possessions and stuff, I've always been really fascinated with them because the cases always border between like, is this a religious thing or is this actually a mental illness that is being treated wrong? And that's what I'm going to get into today. So I'm going to talk about the exorcism case of Annalise Michelle, which (gasps) her case was the inspiration for the exorcism of Emily Rose. Oh my God. I love that so much. I love that movie. Love it, love it, love it. And this case is so, like, crazy. And I've I've seen it covered several times. Recently, I was watching BuzzFeed Unsolved, mm-hmm. the Supernatural one, and they did this case. And I was like, holy crap. I forgot how crazy this case is. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I think it's the first one where I'm like, I don't know. Like, 90% yeah. of the time when you listen to Exercise Story, Exercise, oh, my God. <laughs> Exorcism stories i think well it's obviously like schizophrenia like yeah 
there's nothing but like this story is the one where i'm like but how did she do that like that didn't make any sense so i'm really yeah, excited yeah. my um thesis when i got my poetry masters one of my poems is called exercising demons but it's like working out exercising and it's about how one of my family members i grew up around would always make fat jokes about me and how like i was exercising those demons away so yeah it just made me think of that it's not as sad as it sounds anyway <laughs> i was about to say that went silly. i'm no. bringing you down no i'm not kidding these stories are so sad today so i'm just gonna bring us on down so Annalise Michelle. This happened in, oh, yep, nope, didn't look that up. Liebelfing, Bavaria, West Germany. In, wow, numbers, didn't write those down either. Okay, in 1976, so Anna, Anna Elizabeth, or Annalise Michelle, was born in September 21st of 1952, and she died July 1st, 1976. She was a German woman who underwent Catholic exorcism rites during the year before her death. And that's what gets me. She went through an entire year of an exorcism, which is horrifying. So she was diagnosed with epileptic psychosis, which is also known as the temporal lobe epilepsy. And she had a history of psychiatric treatment, which, you know, obviously was not effective. When she was 16, she experienced a seizure and she was diagnosed with psychosis psychosis and then shortly thereafter she was diagnosed with depression and was treated at a psychiatric hospital by the time she was 20 she had become intolerant of various religious objects and she began to hear voices so this is where it goes a little like was it possession so because she couldn't tolerate religious objects or was this like a schizophrenic thing or what so it gets interesting so despite taking medication for it, her condition just got worse and she became suicidal and she started displaying other symptoms and she was on just a ton of medication. And that's another thing for me is that over medicating can make things worse, but under medicating can make things worse. It's mental health is such a weird fine line situation. So after taking meds for five years, failed to improve her symptoms she and her family became uh, convinced that she was possessed by a demon. You know, because you, yeah, if, she, if you can't cure her with pills, then she's, it's probably a demon. It's fine. Well, I think also her family was like crazy religious, right? They like, were. They were very, 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 very religious. Catholic. Yes, very Catholic. So because they thought she was possessed by a demon, they went to the Catholic church and requested an exorcism. They were rejected the first time they asked. But then after they asked again, and the church kind of thought about it, two priests got permission from a local bishop to come in and do an exorcism in 1975. Annalise Michelle stopped eating food and died due to the malnutrition and dehydration that was caused by this exorcism and her mental health issues. So what fascinates me the most about this case, and I'll touch on it a little bit in a second, is that after her death, her parents and the two Roman Catholic priests were actually found guilty in a court of law for negligent homicide and were sentenced to six months in jail. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, you see a lot of these exorcism things and, you know, they, they spoof it in tropes on, like, criminal minds and all that. But this is a real thing that went outside the realm of just a spooky church story into the actual courts, which fascinates me. I think also it changed exorcism as well. Like it did. they have to have a mental evaluation to prove that it's not mental illness before they'll even do exorcism. Now it's really yeah. fascinating. 
Yes, but again, this was back in the 70s, so (laughs) why does that not surprise me that this went the way it did? So, let's see. In 1970, after Annalise had suffered a third seizure at the psychiatric hospital where she was staying, she was given anti-convulsion drugs, uh, including Dilaunton, which I'm pretty sure is no longer, like, commercially available. I think it was taken off the market, if I recall correctly. IIRC. So this didn't help. And she started saying that she was seeing devil faces at various times of the day. That same month, she was prescribed, oh, Aulept, Alept, which also is no longer on the market. And it's similar to chlorpromazine. And it's used to treat psychoses, including schizophrenia and disturbed behavior and delusions. Mm hmm. By 1973, she suffered from depression and began hallucinating while praying and complained about hearing voices telling her that she was damned and would rot in hell. I just feel so bad for this girl. Oh, it must have been horrific. So terrifying. Like, I constantly say that it's exhausting being in my head with all of my, like, anxiety issues. I couldn't imagine being alone in my head while thinking that voices were telling me that I was going to rot in hell. So her treatment in the psychiatric hospital did not improve her health and her depression worsened. Long-term treatment didn't help either. And she grew super frustrated with taking the meds for five years. So, but she was still having these like religious delusions. So she became intolerant of Christian sacred places and thought like, because these quote unquote demons were reaching her, even in her prayers, she couldn't deal with, like she wasn't safe. So she wouldn't wouldn't tolerate like sacred places and objects and she wouldn't be like around crucifixes she would react negatively to them so she went to san damiano with a family friend who regularly organized christian pilgrimages and this escort concluded that she was suffering from a demonic possession because she was unable to walk past a crucifix and refused to drink the water of a christian holy spring and this is what this friend wrote Annalise told me, and Frau Hein confirmed this, that she was unable to enter the shrine. She approached it with the greatest hesitation, then said that the soil burned like fire and she simply could not stand it. She then walked around the shrine in a wide arc and tried to approach it from the back. She looked at the people who were kneeling in the area surrounding the little garden, and it seemed to her that while praying they were gnashing their teeth. She got as far as the edge of the little garden, then she had to turn back. Coming from the front again, she had to avert her glance from the picture of Christ. She made it several times to the garden, but could not get past it. She also noted that she could no longer look at medals or pictures of saints. They sparkled so immensely that she could not stand it. Oh, wow. I just feel so bad for this girl. So both she and her family, as well as her community, became convinced and consulted several priests about her demonic possession, requesting the exorcism. So here's the thing about exorcism in the catholic church official approval for an exorcism is given when the person strictly meets a set of wow words are hard set of criteria that they are considered to be suffering from uh, possession or under demonic control intense dislike for religious objects and supernatural powers are some of the first indications so they kind of like put it you know well she could be possessed but she could be mentally ill but then She worsened physically, and she started to display aggression. She used to self-injure herself. She drank her own urine 
and she ate insects like spiders off the floor. No. Yeah. So, in 1973, she started her treatment with Tegretol, which is an anti-seizure drug and a mood stabilizer. And she was prescribed an antipsychotic drug during the course of the religious rites, and they and took them frequently until sometime before her death. So even while she was on um, going through this exorcism, she was still taking the Tegretol. So the priest Ernst Alt, whom they met, on seeing her declared that she didn't look like an epileptic and that he did not see her having seizures. He believed she was suffering from demonic possession and urged the local bishop to allow an exorcism. In a letter to Alt in 1975, Annalise Michelle wrote, I am nothing. Everything about me is vanity. What should I do? I have to improve. You pray for me. I want to suffer for other people, but this is so cruel. I know. So like, right. So she believed that this was a test from God, but she also couldn't stand to be around religious symbols, which is just so sad. I feel so bad for her. Okay, so in September of the same year, Bishop Joseph Stengel granted the priest Arnold Wren's permission to exercise according to the Rituale Romanum of 1614, which is the, the exorcism book, basically, but ordered for total secrecy. So tell no one that we're doing this because it was not good. So Wren's performed the first session on the 24th of September of that year. Annalise began talking increasingly about dying to atone for the wayward youth of the day and the apostate priest of the modern church. And she refused to eat towards the end. Like she started starving herself and they would try to force feed her and she would throw it back up. And something that I forgot to put in my notes, but that I've seen mentioned on several of the places that I've watched about this case, she would do over a hundred genuflections to God a day where she fell to her knees. She would stand up and then fall to her knees and she would do them so much. That after the first like 20 or 30, she couldn't stand up on her own. So her parents would pick her up so she could fall back to her knees. That is horrific. So they were like enabling this bad, painful behavior. Mm-hmm. So ugh, I, ooh, I hate this case. I hate it. I hate it. It's another reason I'm like terrified of becoming a mom. I think that was evidence in that court trial that she was almost... I don't want to say abuse, but they did make her do stuff before this even started because yeah. of their strict Catholic beliefs. And- yes, yeah, there was there was a lot of abuse going on. So at this point, the when she said that you know she started talking about dying to atone for her sins and all of that, her parents decided to stop consulting doctors and letting them medicate her, and that's when they really like doubled down on exorcism. <sighs> Ugh, this case. I'm depending on your stories to be really funny. So (laughs) I'm going to try to come through. (laughs) Okay, good. 67 exorcism sessions were performed. Oh my God. One or two each week lasting up to four hours were performed about 10 months. That is so terrible. Oh my God. I can't even imagine because you're being held down. You're probably seizing. She's already in pain because her knees are shattered. Like, I yes. Like, she's drinking her own urine. She's eating bugs off the floor. When she's not being exercised, she's chained to the floor. Like, this poor girl was absolutely tortured. Yeah. I mean, whether, whether she was possessed or not, she was still tortured. 
So, after 10 months of this, on July 1st, 1976, Michelle died in the home. And there was an autopsy performed, which reto- reported that the cause of her death was malnutrition and dehydration due to being in, in a semi-starvation state for almost a year. Oh, my God. So, this poor woman was suffering for so long. So, essentially, they are giving her just enough for a year to not die. And she finally just refused to eat. Isn't that what they did in in the Nazi concentration camps? They'd only give you enough so that you wouldn't die, but you'd be starving? Yes. Oh, my God. That is... Yep. I can't even imagine. And... What's even worse with that, and it, it goes along with what the Nazis did in concentration camps. When she died, she weighed 68 pounds. Oh, my God. Yeah, which is 30 kilograms. And she had suffered broken knees from the genuflections. And she was unable to move without assistance and was reported to have contracted pneumonia. <sighs> and how old was she when she died? Oh, she... Oh, where's my paper? Get your act together, Ashley. <laughs> she was she was 23. Oh, that poor baby. Yeah. So this 23-year-old weighed 68 pounds at her death. <sighs> okay. Sorry, I have to like keep taking breathing breaks because dear God. So let's get to the prosecution. Because yes, this is about medical history, but I think this is also important to talk about. So for the prosecution, the state prosecutor maintained that her death could have been prevented even one week before she died. Like a week before she died, if they had done anything differently, they could have saved her life. Mm -hmm. In 1976, the state charged Michelle's parents, Annalise Michelle's parents, and priests Ernst Alt and Arnold Renz with negligent homicide. During the case, her body was exhumed and tapes were played to the court of the exorcisms over the 11 months which led to her death. Which, if you have not gone to YouTube or just Googled these tapes and listened to them, A, you're going to need kind of like a strong fortitude to do it because they are absolutely heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. But they're also fascinating to me because I'm weird. Yeah, I think the most... The thing that got me was that in some of the tapes, she's speaking Aramaic. And there's yes. only a handful of people in the world that know how to speak Aramaic. So that, but I think the prosecution said that she could have learned it at the college she was attending. Yes. Yeah. That's what I saw too, was that she could have picked it up at school. And that's why she knew Aramaic. In some of the recordings, it sounds like she's screaming. But as she's screaming, you hear like three or four voices at once. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's very fascinating. I think that... Was it Hitler supposed to be one of the things possessing her? Yes. Yeah. Yes. She. uh, A lot of it's in German, but she talks about how they ask her, I think, oh my gosh, I meant to listen to this before we recorded. They ask her, you know, how many demons are possessing you? And she says four, and they say name them. And one of them, she says is Hitler, which is very, you know, like, Germany at that time. Yes. I also think it's disappointing. Hitler should not be just like possessing people. He needs to be tortured. Real talk. Fuck off Hitler. Yeah. Fuck Hitler. I can't imagine them letting him go. He's probably some fuck boy down there. Yeah. I really prescribe to the punishment that South Park has for Hitler in the movie. (laughs) 
where he has to dress like a maid and there's a pineapple shoved up his ass every day. Like I'm I'm for it. I am he deserves much worse than that. So fuck Hitler. But yes, so I think that everyone should check out the tapes. I mean, they're hard to listen to, but they're they're interesting and you can hear what she went through and it kind of goes back to our episode about serial killers where I talked about that I feel like we have kind of a like duty to continue saying the victims' names and bearing witness to what happened to them. And that's why I listen to those tapes because I think that you need to stay aware of that. And I also think that the tapes have also helped people push for her to be eligible for sainthood. Yes. Yes. So that's another reason. So yeah, they, they played the tapes in the courts and it was from all 11 months that she dealt with this and they used it as evidence leading up to her death. So the parents were defended by lawyer Eric Schmidt Leishner and their lawyers were actually sponsored by the church. Oh, wow. Like Vatican church or like, just like Catholic church. Like how high did this go? (laughs) I think it was just the Catholic church. I feel like I heard somewhere that it was the Vatican, but Vatican, but I forgot to write that down. So I'm not going to like, don't hold me to that. Well, I know that you can't have an exorcism unless the Vatican approves it. So I guess it would make sense if it was all the way up. Yes. So I I feel like it was, but I'm, because I didn't exactly write that down. I don't want to say absolutely. So the state recommended that no involved parties be jailed. And the recommended sentence for the priests was a fine. But the prosecution concluded that the parents should be exempt from punishment because they had suffered enough. Mm, I don't know. If you're you're picking your kid up and making her slam back down on broken kneecaps, I think you have not suffered enough. I don't. Exactly. Like, if you are taking away all medical care from your kid because you think that demons did it, maybe, maybe don't. Yeah. Don't have a lot of sadness for you. So anyway, so the trial itself started on March 30th of 1978 in the district court, and it drew a ton of interest. Before the court, doctors testified that she was not possessed, stating that this was a psychological effect because of her strict religious upbringing and her epilepsy. But Dr. Richard Roth, who was asked for medical help by Alt, one of the priests, allegedly told her during the exorcism that there is no injection against the devil, Annalise. Gross, 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 gross. A medical doctor was like, sorry, you got the demons in you, so I can't inject that away. I, 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 mm, I, I don't know what to. Which was You even, should know better. <laughs> right? You are a medical professional. I don't care yep. if this is the 70s. You are still in, ooh, uh, it makes me so mad. And what yeah. is even worse, and is not in my notes, but I do know this for a fact. He even later on, they were like, uh, I'm pretty sure you told her you couldn't inject her against the devil. And he was like, I never said that. Oh, Hippocratic yeah, okay. oath, bitch. You're not supposed yeah. to do no harm. He's also the one who suggested that they bring this priest alt in and then went back and was like, I didn't say that. I'm a doctor. I wouldn't recommend religious intervention. Whatever. Fuck you, dude. Fuck you and Hitler. Anyway. <laughs> I get my feelings. I'm sorry. We need, we need to make a fuck list. Columbus, Hitler. I mean, Hitler's this guy. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Richard Roth. <sighs> Father Alt. Yeah. Coming for oh, you guys. Man. I mean, it probably sounds pretty bad because they're all men so far. <laughs> okay. Look, 
history has proven that a lot of the people on our list are going to be men it's on the true. fuck you list. I was going to say the fuck list, but that's a different connotation. Yes. I mean, listen, history was written by the winners and historically men are the ones that consider themselves the winners. So most yes. of history is written by men and we're going to get into that more with my story. Oh, that. yes. So the lawyer Schmidt Leishner said that the exorcism was legal and that the German constitution protected citizens in the unrestricted exercise of their religious beliefs. The defense played the tapes of the exorcism sessions and they sometimes featured, and this is like what I was talking about, what they claimed to be demons arguing. So multiple voices when she was talking. And they used that to assert the claim that she was possessed. Okay, there are five. There are five demons that she, when the priest said, how many demons are in this girl? She said five. And they identified themselves as Lucifer, Cain, Judas Iscariot, Hitler, and Nero, among others. Oh, man. Yes. So that's, that's a lot going on in one tiny little lady. And then they further said that she was finally freed because of the exorcism just before her death. So super convenient. Oh, she was exorcised of the demons. So, but then she died. So you're not going to find evidence that she's still possessed because she, she died. And oh, I hate these people. I hate them. It's also an interesting collection of demons. Like I understand Judas and Cain because they're like, you know, the original evil and then yes. the, the traitor and Hitler because she's in German. But Nero is kind of the odd one out, I think. <laughs> Nero Nero threw, threw me and I, you know, I expected like, you know, Beelzebub or the yeah. others that I won't say because they scare you. I will but, bleep them out. <laughs> yes, you will bleep me if I say the Z one. And I will. <laughs> which makes me laugh every time I listen to it. But yeah, like Nero is kind of out of left field, field, but I've I've listened to that tape and it's actually very fascinating because she does say these names and I it wonder, like gave me chills. I wonder if she had like studied Nero in college and that it was like fresh on her brain. That's the supposition I've seen from a lot of the sites I've read on it is that because she was studying this before she got sick that she like that's why she went to Nero and the yeah. other I mean, you know, your girl likes some paranormal shit, but I also try to think scientifically because, you know, yeah. I have mentioned that my undergrad is psychology. So it makes more sense that this is mental illness to me. So yeah. there seems like a lot of the stuff. The one thing that I think is the most illogical is I know there is a scientific reason that they said in the court case that she could sound like she had multiple voices. Yes. But I don't know how that relates to the mental illness, like how she would have both just coincidentally. That's the thing that kind of gets me. It just, they all seem to have like a logical explanation, but when you put them yes. all together, that seems a little bit more like, what are the chances that every single one of these things happen at the same time? Yeah, it's very weird. And I mean, I, I believe in the supernatural 100%, but... I also feel like a lot of times supernatural stuff is blamed for run-of-the-mill, like, illness, yeah. like in this case. So the bishop, when he was on trial, said that he was not aware of her alarming health condition when he approved the exorcism, and he did not want to testify. Which, like, how very shaggy is that? Like, oh, you caught me on the counter, wasn't me, like... <laughs> 
excellent reference. <laughs> right? That's just all that popped into my head. Wasn't me. I mean, so, also, it just seems like they must have all felt some guilt to deflect so fast. Because oh, they all yeah. knew they did it. But they were all really quick to be like, they had to have known they were wrong or else they would have admitted to it. Like, of course I helped this exorcism happen because she was, you know, possessed. But if they were like, oh, shit, she wasn't possessed. That's probably why they're all like, I didn't do it. <laughs> well, like, but they, they kind of were like, oh, religious beliefs. Even if she wasn't possessed, she wanted to be exercised. And that's her religious right. And it's like, no, she was actually not of sound mind and needed someone to step in and take care of her. But y'all chained her to a floor. Are they victim blaming? She wanted this. Yes. yes. Oh my God. Maybe if she hadn't talked like Hitler, we wouldn't be here. What? Oh my God. I, <sighs> I, oh, that poor woman. She was so young. Imagine. I mean, I'm, I'm in my thirties. I'm going to say young thirties. If you talk to my husband, he's like, you're not in your young thirties anymore, but I can't imagine me as you're basically a child in your early twenties. You haven't even fully developed in your brain yet. You're not even who you're supposed to be. And for her life to get cut off so short for what a bunch of people being like, Oh, you're obviously possessed and not one person being like, well, maybe we could try to help her a different way other than chaining to her floor and starving her because how is that going to help anybody? Even yeah. if you are possessed, how is chaining you to a floor and allowing you, you to, I mean, picking her up and letting her crush her kneecaps, like, that's Ugh. not helping. That's, it's, I, oh, God, I it's know, just awful. I know I've read that they said that basically every bone in her legs was shattered from doing yes. that because the force that she was throwing herself. Yeah, she could not get up on her own. And the fact that she survived that, yeah, but died of malnourishment, that, mm-hmm. oh. Oh, my heart. I know. (sighs) So let's get to the sentencing. Okay. So all of the accused were found guilty of manslaughter resulting from negligence, like I said. And they were sentenced to six months in jail. But that was later suspended and they were all sentenced to three years of probation. Oh, my goodness. Can't see my face, but what the actual fuck. This was a lighter sentence than was anticipated by people. And it was more than requested by the prosecution who had asked that only the priest be fined and that the the parents be found guilty but not punished, which goes back to that whole like, oh, they were victims too. No, the fuck they weren't. Sorry. No, No, they (sighs) were not. I have to keep like taking a moment to get right with my God in my head because Jesus Christ. Okay. So then the church approving such an old-fashioned exorcism rite drew public and media attention. And according to John M. Duffy, the, the case was a misidentification of mental illness. Okay, so this talks a little bit about when her body was exhumed. After the trial, her parents asked that the authorities res- exhume the remains of her, their daughter. The official reason presented by the parents to the authorities was that she had been buried an undue hurry in a cheap coffin. Oh, because we're so kind and want our daughter to have the best to be buried after we starved her. Whatever. Whatever. I'm, ugh, anger. Anger. So much anger. Wasn't the real reason that a nun came to them and told them that she had a vision from God that she hadn't? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because I'd yes. forgotten to write that down. But yeah, the a nun from that area was like, hey guys, I had 
a vision that God gave me that she's still in there, but she's not aging or like deteriorating or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. So they had her exhumed, but they said it was because she was in a cheap coffin and they wanted to replace the coffin. So almost two years after the burial in 1978, her remains were replaced in a new oak coffin lined with tin. Don't know why tin, but okay. The official reports state that the body bore the signs of consistent deterioration and the accused exorcists were discouraged from seeing her remains. Arnold Renz later stated that he had been prevented from entering the mortuary. So he, I will give him credit. He did try to go up there, but they, he wasn't allowed. Okay. The ch- church finally, after this, changed its position, stating that she was mentally ill, not possessed. And her grave, from then until now, became a pilgrimage site. Mm-hmm. So, like, people make religious pilgrimages to this place. Yeah, I believe that the idea was that she, I don't know if somebody made this up or she said it. I, didn't, I mean, obviously, I didn't know you are doing this, so I didn't look it up. But I think that the idea was that she supposedly had this vision from Mary that said, yes. I can take you to heaven now, but if you stay, you're going to bring a lot more people to God. And that yes. that's why she allowed herself to die, because she could have died much earlier. And that's why people assume that she's probably a saint. Well, and here, I'll I'll skip ahead just a minute for that. So here is the beauty from the terror. Because of this case, the number of officially sanctioned exorcisms in Germany decreased after this. So technically, she did save some lives because Mm -hmm. she cut down on how many people were being subjected to the same treatment. They may have gotten different treatment that was just as horrifying, but it wasn't. Sanctioned by the church. And this was all actually in spite of the Pope at the time supporting the wider use of it. So it was Pope Benedict XVI. I couldn't do the Roman numerals in my head for a second, so I had to stop. (laughs) Uh, And then in 1999, Pope John Paul II actually made the rules even stricter. So it's very rare to get exorcisms. I like that Pope. I do too. Thank you, John Paul II. He actually came to San Antonio and they have a monument in one of the Catholic, uh, it's one part of the missions, but huh. the uh, chapel has a little monument to him and it has a relic from him. What? What? That's like cool. Relics. I'm not Catholic. I'm fascinated with Catholicism. And Same. San Antonio has so many relics and I geek out over them. So I think it's the blood of John Paul II <gasps> they have. Okay. Yeah, we should go see it. Yes, yes, because I will be there. Oh, my God, I'm so excited about coming down. Anyway, so here's something I love. In 2005, Ulrich Neiman, a Jesuit priest, doctor, and psychiatrist whom priests call in exorcism cases to evaluate the patients, told Washington Post this. I love this quote, and I really appreciate it. As a doctor, I say there is no such thing as possession. In my view, these patients are mentally ill. I pray with them, but that alone doesn't help. You have to deal with them as a psychiatrist. But at the same time, when the patient comes from Eastern Europe and believes that he's been impaired by evil, it would be a mistake to ignore his belief system. So I really appreciate that they acknowledge their belief system, but still say, hey, we need to approach this as a mental health matter and not a possession. So he further said that he does not think he is an exorcist and he does not perform the Roman ritual of 1614. Academic Hagee Schwartz says the Michelle case showed demonic possession as a variation 
of what's now called multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder. Uh-huh. And then apparently in 2013, the house that this all occurred in was the case of arson and people think that it was burnt down because the exorcism happened there. Oh, wow. But yeah, so that is uh, the case of Annalise Michelle. I just, I feel so, so bad for this woman. Yeah, part of me doesn't want to think that she was possessed, but then part of me has some sort of comfort that if she died feeling that Mary herself came to her and yes. was like, I'm going to take you to heaven, I think that some sort of peace, but... Because of her, I think the Catholic Church said more people have, like, converted to Catholicism and more people yeah. have, you know. So she did have a huge impact on the world and on science because that the Catholic Church has to go through so many more steps before they can say you can have an exorcism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's just, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's really scary. I, I yeah. just can't imagine how scary it must have been for her to be surrounded real talk i know a lot of schizophrenics have like auditory and visual hallucinations but just imagine having those of demons that would be the most terrifying yeah i i watched a simulation the other day where you you put on headphones i'll have to find it and send it to you if you are interested but you put on headphones and it takes you a on like a walkthrough of a house as someone with schizophrenic delusions mm-hmm. and you hear the voices going around your head and then your headphones, they switch ears. As the camera turns, you see like a demon sitting on the stairs. And then when you turn away and turn back, it's gone and just back and forth and all this stuff where you walk into the dark kitchen and there's someone sitting on the bar and it's terrifying. I mean, I had like such anxiety after that. It's heartbreaking. But yeah, we did that in college, the simulators. And oh, it's it, so scary. But yeah, schizophrenia is really scary. And if you really think about it, like, you cannot develop schizophrenia before 12 or after 40 because your brain has to be forming in a certain way. So it makes right. a lot of sense that a lot of these possession cases are within this window. You don't yeah. see me from before or after this. And it's because I think it's your frontal lobe has to be completely formed. And once it's completely formed, you can no longer develop schizophrenia because that's the, I think it's your frontal. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've been in college, guys, and I don't use this degree. So Real talk. <laughs> okay, I was right. Two parts of your frontal lobe and then one small area in your hippocampus. Okay, so, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, because I know that your frontal lobe isn't fully developed until you're almost in your, like, that's why I always say when you're in early 20s, you're not the human you're going to be until you're in your late 20s, 30s, because your frontal lobe hasn't fully developed yet. That's real talk. Whew. All right. So that was a downer. That was such <laughs> a downer. Bring us back up. All I'm right. going to continue eating this oatmeal cream pie. All right. So the question is, how how dark are your other two? Do I need to go like <laughs> super funny or do I need to save the super funny for like the other two? <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Okay, so one of them isn't terrible. My spooky is also kind of sad, but not not like child neglect sad. So, I don't know. It's like a four on the sad scale. And what would you consider this one on the sad scale? <laughs> that one was like an eight. All right. I'm going to go with my funny. Okay, and, good. Uh, again, I'm sorry, mom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, you want to lose weight, you eat better, and you're more active, right? You want to avoid cavities, you brush your teeth. All right, yep. so 
If you want to cure anemia, insomnia, diarrhea, the somnia shit. Okay. You want to <laughs> <laughs> I almost spit my water. <laughs> okay. So if you want to cure insomnia, diarrhea, gas, indigestion, hemorrhoids, sallow skin, cold extremities, and nervousness, what do you think you do? God, whatever this is though, I need I need it in my life because I've got all of that shit. <laughs> You might want to re- <laughs> retract that in a second. So oh, if you thought to yourself, stick something up your bum, you would be correct. <laughs> so face. I retract my original statement. Yeah, I know. This is one of those moments I wish that they could see my face. Uh, if you join Patreon, you could actually see this on our bloopers. Shameless right. look. Maybe that's what Albert Fish was doing with the uh, kerosene soaked <laughs> wooden dowel up the butt that he... Uh, lit on fire anyway go on maybe let's let's unpack this so in the 1800s you know when our great great whatever's were young it's possible they were into some butt stuff but it's not the sexual thing you would like assume today honest to god they thought that if they stuck a butt cork up your southern starfish then it would (laughs) it would (laughs) it would end constipation you're all the nails, yeah. Oh, okay. Just a re- just a regular cork or like a medicated cork. I mean, they had different styles. We're gonna get into that, but yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to leaven up the whole butt plug with some better language. Butts, 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 butts. Okay, so the idea was first inspired by a surgical device affectionately referred to as the bougie. I'm going to call it the bougie. It might be the bogey, but I'm going to call it the bougie for comedic effect. Okay. I'm so glad you said that because when you have a weight loss surgery, your stomach pouch that's left is also called a bougie. Go on. What? Okay, then it is that. I'm going to assume it's that. All right. So it was used by medical professionals to aid the defecation process by simulating the type of anal widening that occurs, you know, whenever you need to go really bad. Thanks. I I'm, hate it. I'm assuming after you've been to a burrito joint, that kind <laughs> of widening. <laughs> okay. Looking at you, taco places. We're in the mecca of taco places down here. Okay. <sighs> So from there, it didn't take long for some enterprising spirit to come up with a do-it-yourself kit. (laughs) And that's where the good times started for this story. All right. So in the late 19th century, until at least the 1940s, let's let's put that in context. Oh, God. So so the time your house was built. Yes, my house (laughs) was born of no longer butt-plugging. All right, so Dr. Young's ideal rectal dilator was a thing that you could buy if you wanted to cure everything. That sounds like something that needs to have a hand crank. <laughs> Ooh, aside from the list above, these uh, plastic torpedoes promise to fix constipation, promote a more refreshing sleep, relieve foul breath, take away any bad taste in your mouth, help with a backed up prostate and even cure insanity. Okay. Question. How does does sticking something up your butt fix your bad breath? You are going about this wrong. Wrong end. Yes. (laughs) All this was for a low, low price of $2 and 50 cents in a 
U.S. dollar. And professional discounts the doctors got would resell them even cheaper to patients. <gasps> so today is around 70 bucks US dollars. Okay. God damn inflation. <laughs> <sighs> this was essentially a cure all, much like snake oil, which you probably would have wanted handy when you were inserting this butt plug. <laughs> Real talk. Oh my God. Snake oil salesmen were rejoicing worldwide. Uh, it didn't take long before business was booming. The rectal dilator even evolved with time. First fashioned from hard rubber, then bakelite, an old-timey formaldehyde-based plastic, and then finally aluminum. Uh, okay. There's no give to aluminum. Nope. <laughs> they also varied in size and came in sets so that you could acclimate. <laughs> Thanks, I hate it. Your face is so beautiful right now. I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, So once you started to use the dilator, there was apparently no turning back. Like ear stretchers, but this time for literal assholes. I just, uh, like, I... (sighs) I picture... Okay, so I don't know yet how they go about, like, using these. If they, like, just use them in their home or if they, like, stick it up there and go about their day. But I'm picturing, like, a Victorian dude walking down, like, a dirt road (laughs) and then it, like, torpedoing out of his butt to tint the back of his pants. I don't know. Let's (laughs) let's move on. That's where I'm at. I'm horrified. Oh, God. Oh, it gets so much worse. (laughs) (laughs) Normally, my historical detours are, like, better might so much worse all right so (laughs) it might sound like a crazy crazy thing but this is from the same historical time periods that promised smoking was healthy booze was good to shut up your kids and then claimed that (laughs) masturbation would make you blind all that took a turn i was on board (laughs) until until the, the end oh god all it took was Young to claim that at least three-fourths of all howling maniacs of the world were curable in a few weeks. And, oh, wait, hold on. All it took was Young to claim that at least three-fourths of all howling maniacs of the world were curable within a few weeks' time by the application of the official methods for an 1893 medical news editorial to jump on board with their support. So he had no proof. He just said it, and they're like, that makes sense. (laughs) I don't... Like, that sounds wrong, but I don't know enough to refute it. Oh, here's a quote from the medical editorial. Why, then, in the name of pity and kindness, do these men not apply the dilators each to himself or to each other? That's a lot of words for trying to justify gay sex without justifying gay sex. There's, there's, that's, that's the key to this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Was them being like, you can't be a sodomy, but if it's going to cure everything, why doesn't everybody shove it up their butt? Well, and like, if another guy is doing it for you, it's fine. Cause like, it's not sex. It's, it's medical. Science. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, all right, so whether this Dr. Young guy was actually a real person or not, he did get a few things right. A very, very, very tiny, very, very, very tiny, tiny thing. Okay. 
So he had the belief that the body had an intricate connection of roads that allowed the body's organs to function together, which is technically correct. Everything does work together. And even if he didn't have the evidence or language to explain it fully, he was technically right. And the claim that you can fix constipation and other bum-related issues is also tiny bit true. Doctors today use anal dilators to device similar to a speculum designed to open and relax internal and external anal sphincters and the rectum in order to facilitate medical inspection or relieve constipation. But <laughs> Young believed that the key to these roads were all tied to your balloon knot, which is what Zeke calls it, and I think it's hilarious, so I had to add it in here. I love that you said that because that's also a reference in Letterkenny. Go on. Is it? Is that a, like a northerner thing? No, maybe uh, one of the guys <laughs> on there. His uh, his email address is like Slipknot Balloon Knot. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! All right, all right. But all this is wrong, obviously. But it shouldn't be surprising since there was also people who thought that if you blew smoke up someone's ass, literally, you could avoid drowning. What? Oh man, Jerry's Jerry's not breathing. Quick, get him out of the water. Turn him over. I'll save him. <sighs> this is true. And here is my long ass historical detour that's gonna take a turn. More so than normal. All right. So back wait, in the late. Wait, 70- I have a question. I have a question. Yeah. Uh huh. So if blowing air into a guy or a person's butt saves him from drowning. Is that why it's called a balloon knot? Because you're turning that person into a balloon? What? Oh, my God. What? You okay, go on. Sorry. solved this whole oh thing God. for us. Cold case cracked. <laughs> All right. So, little history about blowing smoke up people's asses. Because that's a real thing. I did <sighs> not know it was a real thing. Okay. So, back in the late, late 1700s, Doctors literally blew smoke up people's asses. Believe it or not, it was the general mainstream medical procedure used to, among other things, resuscitate people who were otherwise presumed dead. In fact, it was so commonly used in resuscitation that the equipment used in the procedure was hung alongside certain major waterways, such as the River Thames. (laughs) Okay. People frequenting waterways were expected to know the location of this equipment similar to modern times about defibrillators (laughs) it was so common you would have to know the location of how to get the little pipe to shove smoke up there okay okay look if it's between me dying or someone shoving a pipe up my butt to blow smoke (laughs) let me die (laughs) okay so how did this all get started i'm sure you're all wondering okay I do have some historical knowledge here. Okay. The Native Americans were known to have tobacco usage in all kinds of ways, including treating various medical ailments. And the European doctors soon picked up on this and began advocating for treatment from everything from headaches to cancer. But um, the Native Americans were smoking it. Why did Europeans are like, let's just shove it up the bum. That's going to be Europeans. better. Yeah. <laughs> All of us with our European ancestry. We're to blame, honestly. All of us. Yep. Yep. 100%. <laughs> all of us. Well, not all of us. We have listeners from around the world now. Yes. Yeah, true. So all of us uh, 
mixing pot USA people. It's all our ancestors that did this. You're welcome. Shame upon your ancestors. (laughs) So in 1745, Richard Mead was among the first known Westerners to suggest that administering tobacco via an enema was an effective way to resuscitate drowning victims. By 1774, doctors William Hawes and Thomas Cogan, who practiced medicine in London, formed the Institution for Affording Immediate Relief to Persons Apparently Dead from Drowning, which is the longest name. Seriously, that's really a mouthful. Yeah. This group later became the Royal Humane Society. (laughs) What are you doing to those dogs? Back in the 18th century, the society promoted the resuscitation of drowning people by paying four guineas, which is about 450 pounds or $756, to anyone who was able to successfully revive a drowning victim. Let me die. (laughs) Volunteers within the society soon began using the latest and greatest methods of reviving such half-drowned individuals via tobacco smoke enemas. I can't even say it without laughing. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Artificial respiration was used if the tobacco enema did not actually revive them. Shocker. What? In order that people could easily remember what to do in these cases, in 1774, Dr. Halston published a helpful little rhyme. Oh, God. Tobacco enema, breathe and bleed. Keep warm and rub till you succeed. And spare no pains for what you do may one day be repaid to you. That's what she said. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh, uh, the 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 uh, the bleed part. Uh, okay, huh? Listen, God, this let story me die. is why I wanted a podcast. Oh, Jesus. God. Okay. The practice of using tobacco smoke enemas on drowning victims quickly spread as a popular way to introduce tobacco into the body to treat an array of other medical conditions, including headaches, hernias, respiratory ailments, and abdominal cramps, among other things. Which, no thanks. <laughs> Just, I'm out. Keep your shit away from us. Okay. Keep your smoke away from my butt. <laughs> Tobacco enemas were even used to treat typhoid fever during the cholera outbreaks when patients were in their final stages of the illness. There was not a follow-up to that, so I'm assuming it did not work. (laughs) Because they died. (laughs) In their most rudimentary form, tobacco smoke enemas were not always administered with the aid of a bellow. Originally, smoke was blown up the victim's rectum with whatever was handy, like a smoking pipe. Of course, such close contact was an ideal, and if the rescuer accidentally inhaled instead of blue, let's just say things one should not aspirate. <laughs> okay, let's just say things that one should not aspirate could be inhaled. If a person jerked around, mouth contact was also a risk, even more risky considering the person being administered too was sometimes deceased. Oh, why are you doing this to me? Uh, uh. You are welcome. Also, I like, I just can't stop thinking about the fact that I now understand why kids these days are like butt chugging cough syrup. Like, this isn't a new thing, apparently. Also, is this where the term blowing smoke comes from? Like, 
Yes. We're going to get to yes. that. Okay, go but, uh, I mean, it is, it is true that things yes. get absorbed more quickly down there. That's why we have suppositories and shit. So, like, people yep. that do, like, I guess it's a thing now where beer up your butt. Yep. People get drunker. Yeah, you get drunker. So, I, I guess know in, like, several movies they've done, like, uh, I think it's in Wolf of Wall Street. He uses a straw to blow cocaine up a hooker's butt. Yes. Pretty sure. <laughs> yep. That makes that makes sense. Yeah. Why do why do I know so much about this? Go on. <laughs> but yeah, I'm assuming that's why like tobacco, you'd feel it more. True. I mean, I guess you wouldn't get lung cancer, but your colon but, probably wouldn't be so lucky. Yeah, so. rectal cancer. All right. So, in fact, one of the earliest documented references of using such an enema to resuscitate someone. Came from someone using a pipe in 1746. In this case, a man's wife had nearly drowned and was unconscious. It was suggested that an emergency tobacco enema might revive her. Imagine this, the scene. She's drowning. Everybody's like, get the tobacco, shove it up her butt. Okay, everybody's panicked. But somebody's calm enough to think about that kit by the water source and like, aha. Yes. All right. Thinker, that one. At this point, the husband of the woman took a pipe, filled it with burning tobacco, shoved the stem into his wife's butthole, and then covered the other end of the pipe with his mouth and blew. As one would imagine, hot embers of the tobacco being blown up her <sighs> butt had the intended effect. That'll wake her was, up. She was revived! Yay! Salvation by enema. I don't think it was the smoke. I think it was the fire. Look, yeah, if you put a fire, back to Albert Fish, put a fire up my butt, I'm, I'm going to wake up. But you know what? Just let me die. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. This practice quickly spread, reaching its peak in the early 20th century, which is far too recent for my Far case. too long. <laughs> Figuratively, it's still alive and well. Ugh. <sighs> so, detour over. That took a wild turn. Forgot we were even on a detour. I know I did too. I was like, oh yeah, butt plugs. Okay. Dr. Young kept selling these medical butt plugs until 1940 when a shipment of them was seized by the Food and Drug Administration of the USA and it was Yikes. destroyed for deceptive advertising. Okay. They decided that the products were mislabeled and were dangerous to health when used with the frequency and duration that was prescribed, recommended, and suggested in the label. Oh, public, <laughs> public access to medical devices as a whole were not regulated by the FDA until 1938. So, this was two years later, and the FDA decided one of their first acts as an FDA was to uh, get rid of the metallic butt corks, and they were banned. Okay. Yeah, banned. Yeah, banned. <laughs> so yes. Wow. Wow. Just okay. Take, take a moment to soak that in. <sighs> so yeah. That, <laughs> wow. That was. Wow. Um. Yeah, I'm like I'm literally speechless. Yeah, I was so quick to judge kids these days for the butt chugging, but no, that's really been a thing. I mean. Now people pay to have coffee enemas and shit like that. Oh, yeah, this is not new. But just but yeah. imagine, all our great-great-grandparents probably put something up their butt because this was very popular. True. 
Very either, true. Either a butt plug or some spoke. One of those probably happened. Ugh. And now people do that for fun. <laughs> well, it's not for science. So. True. If you can't poop, go to Amazon and you can find a butt plug with a foxtail attached to it. To add a little fun to your constipation. I don't know. Yeah. Also, RIP to my search history. I'm probably going to get some weird advertisements for, for I forgot to make that incognito. Yeah, my, my searches were pretty tame comparatively. Nope, mine were not. But yes, luckily you took the topic <laughs> that I was going to do, so I had to readjust. I, so, I took yeah. one for the team. Yes. My, my sister actually was the one that brought this to my attention. She was like, have you heard about butt plugs? They just like widen your butthole until the poop just slid right out. And I was like, no, I did not. Man, why, shit happens. Why do you know that? So yeah. What do you know? It's a thing. <laughs> Surprise! That, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to take in. No pun intended. <laughs> but yeah, if you, I'm going to post pictures, not of people inserting, but of the kits. And they are just, it's wild. And the advertisements, I mean, people are really on board with this. That yeah. is nuts. <laughs> holy crap. <laughs> Literally, holy crap. Sorry. You're welcome. Uh, I'm scarred for life now. This is my contribution to society right here. (laughs) Butt plug jokes. I wish there was like a good way to transition from that, but I don't know that there (laughs) is. So would you like to hear my weird or spooky? Spooky. Okay. So let me preface this by saying this is not a supernatural case since I had done a kind of supernatural thing for random. I wanted to do something that may not be construed as spooky, but it's it's scary to me because stuff like this scares me. Okay, so we are going to talk about the toxic lady. I do not know what that is. This is a woman named Gloria Ramirez. I found this awesome article called The Baffling Death of Gloria Ramirez, who's known as the toxic lady. So... When Gloria Ramirez was rushed to the hospital and medical personnel began to work on her in the ER, nurses took note of odd smells and then they started fainting. Oh, no. So this Gloria Ramirez was an ordinary woman living in Riverside, California. She had two kids. She had a husband. Her reverend, Brian Taylor, called her a friend to everyone she met and a, a super jokester who Brought joy to others, you know, just light of our lives, all that. So February 19th of 1994, she was rushed to General Hospital in Riverside. She was having problems with a rapid heartbeat and a drop in blood pressure. She could hardly breathe. And when she was asked questions, she would answer in like super incoherent sentences. So very cognitively impaired and all that. What's even more strange about this is that she was 31 at the time. It wasn't an old lady, so it wasn't like dementia or anything. And she also had late stage cervical cancer, which would explain why her like health was deteriorating. So doctors and nurses went to work on Ramirez right away to try to save her life. They followed all the procedures as much as they could with by injecting her with drugs to try to bring her vital signs back to normal. And then when the nurses removed her shirt to apply the defibrillator electrodes, 
they noticed that her whole body, all of her skin, had this really oily sheen to it. Huh. So medical staff also noted that there was a fruity, garlicky, garlicky odor coming from her mouth. So like her breath smelled like fruit and garlic. When nurses placed a syringe in her arm to obtain a blood sample, her blood smelled like ammonia. And there was manila-colored particles floating in her blood. What? Yeah, so, like, super-duper strange. So, the doctor in charge that night in the ER looked at the blood sample and agreed that something wasn't right with the patient. And it, it had nothing to do with heart failure. <laughs> no shit! Like, <laughs> this, this shit ain't normal. I deduce that that is not normal. <laughs> yeah. Your uh, your blood looks like there's Rice Krispies in it, so there's an issue. Can you imagine the nurse being like, no shit. <laughs> I, okay, you know, from my experience, I've, I've been in hospitals a lot. A, because my mom worked in one forever, so I basically grew up in a hospital. And then from being chronically ill and being in and did, did a ghost just roll the dice? Sorry. Was, sorry. <laughs> okay. No, you're fine. Um, but like also from being chronically ill and being in and out of the hospital a lot, like I have seen more often than not where the doctor comes in and says something and then the nurse comes back in and is like, okay, so I know he said A and B, but he's an idiot. So we're going to do C and D instead. Well, yeah, the nurses are the ones that actually do all the work. all the heavy Yeah, lifting. yeah they Fight know me. how to hook up <laughs> shit and they know what reacts with what and like doctors. Yeah, no. So... I guarantee this nurse was like, doctor, this blood looks weird. And he's like, huh, nurse, this blood looks weird. Like, <laughs> I just fucking said that, dude. So yeah. anyway. Shout so he, out to all nurses out there. Real talk. You are my heroes. I love you. Mwah, mwah, mwah. You deserve a million dollars. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, he agreed. Nothing. Nothing was looking right. Suddenly, one of the attendant nurse, attending nurses fainted. No. Then... Another nurse started having breathing problems. A third nurse passed out. And when she awoke, she was unable to move her arms and legs. Oh, my God. So, like, shit was going down. A total of six people were unable to treat Ramirez because they kept having strange symptoms that were somehow related to the patient. Uh, symptoms ranged from fainting and shortness of breath to nausea and temporary paralysis. Oh, my God. Uh, that's terrifying. Right? So that night, Gloria Ramirez actually died. And even after the death, the that night just got even weirder with her body. So in order to handle the body, a special team arrived in hazmat suits. The team searched the ER for any signs of poison gas, toxins, or other foreign agents or substances. So the hazmat team didn't find anything that could suggest how the medical staff fainted. The team then put the body in a sealed aluminum casket. An autopsy didn't happen until almost a week later and in a special room where the autopsy team conducted its work in hazmat suits. Because of all this, they, the press dubbed Ramirez the toxic lady because everything to do with her body like, was just super fishy, wonky, not, not making sense. So yeah, and nobody could get near the body without facing um, medical problems. But no one could ever really pinpoint why this happened and couldn't get like a definitive cause for her death. So officials conducted three autopsies. One occurred six days after her death, then six weeks, and then right before her burial. A more thorough autopsy happened on March 25th, more than a month after Gloria Ramirez passed away. 
That team concluded that there were signs of Tylenol, lidocaine, codeine, and Tigan, or Tegan, Tigan, in her system. Tigan is an anti-nausea med. Mm-hmm. It breaks down into amines in the body, and then amines are related to ammonia, which could explain why her, bo- her blood smelled like ammonia when they took it at the hospital. So, more importantly, the toxicology report said that Ramirez had large amounts of dimethyl sulfone in her blood and tissue. So, this fascinates me. So, dimethyl sulfone occurs naturally in the human body as it breaks down certain substances. Once the item that contains it enters the body, it appears quickly with a half-life of just about like three days. However, there was so much in her system that it still registered at three times the normal amount six weeks following her death. So, a lot of this. And... What I've seen supposed several times in studying this case is that the face cream she was using at the time caused this buildup of the dimethyl sulfone in her system. Like it absorbed through her skin and got into her bloodstream. Oh my God. Which scares the crap out of me. So three weeks later, on April 12th, 1994, county officials announced that Ramirez died of heart failure due to the kidney failure brought on by late stage cervical cancer. Ramirez was diagnosed with cancer just six weeks before her death, but it was late stage. So they say that her kidneys failed because of the cancer and then her heart failed and that's what killed her. But because of this dimethyl sulfone in her blood, it made everyone around her sick. Oh my uh, gosh. So the unusual substances in her blood were too low to explain her death, even though there were elevated levels of ammonia and dimethyl sulfone in her body. It took county officials two months to release the body for a proper, proper funeral because of the toxicity levels and the fear that people at the funeral would faint or pass out from being around her. Oh, that's so scary. Right? So, I mean, like, very toxic. So, her family was pissed. Her sister said that the deplorable conditions at the hospital were the reason that everybody got sick and the reason she died. The facility had been cited for violations in the past of cleanliness and all that, but the county investigated them again and said nothing pointed towards the conditions at the hospital being to blame. So after an investigation lasting several months, officials concluded that the hospital staff suffered from too much stress and suffered from mass sociogenic illness triggered by an odor or mass hysteria. So (laughs) one, yeah, so one woman was like, this smells a little weird. I'm going to panic. And then they were like, hey, she's panicking. Something's wrong. I'm going to panic. I don't, I don't love this theory that they have because medical professionals are literally trained not to panic. Yeah, that is, that is so insulting to every nurse. Yeah. To think that like, oh, it smells bad. We're all going to panic and faint. Ugh. No, that's not, that's not how that works. I've seen some gross, gross things happen in ERs and the nurses were just like, well, that's a Tuesday. I really don't think that mass hysteria was to blame, but that's what investigations led to was saying that it was mass hysteria. So medical staff at the hospital urged the coroner's office to take a closer look at the file. The cream that she was using is DMSO cream, which isn't a thing anymore, but that, oh, I already forgot the word. Words are hard. Okay. The dimethyl sulfone, uh, this cream contained 70% of that compound. Oh. So it was a lot. So the medical staff 
had them look closer at it and kind of pointed this to this. So they did reopen the case and they found that the reason for her use to of this cream on her skin that then gave her the oily skin, gave her the ammonia smell in her blood and all that is because at this time in the 60s, DMSO creams were a cure-all, quote-unquote. And it could relieve pain and reduce anxiety, but people would also rub it on their bodies for, like, skin pain, achy muscles, all that. So they think that she used it to try to cure the cancer, or at least alleviate the pain from the cancer. Mm-hmm. And then... Apparently, they tested this cream on mice, which I hate animal testing. I'm so against it. But this was the 60s. So it was tested on them, and it showed that this DMSO cream could actually ruin your eyesight. So that was basically why DMSO stopped being used. Mm -hmm. But they also, you know, found that it was a big contender and why some of the problems arose with her body. So just a little about DMSO. It, oh my gosh, so this this blows my mind, and I've seen this several times. So in the 1970s, DMSO was found as the only way to, or the only way to procure DMSO was in hardware stores where you could use it as a degreaser for your tools. Wait, what? Yes, this was a degreaser, but like almost like the stupid essential oil and anti-vax movement now, they thought that like this cream could cure what ails you, and also clean the grease off your tools. Oh, my God. So it wasn't even marketed towards yes. putting on your skin. Oh. Yes. Oh, that's so sad. Just like, what the fuck? So, but the problem is the DMSO that you could get at hardware stores was 99% pure DMSO. Oh, shit. Instead of the creamer that she was using, which was 60%. Which is super gross. So apparently. When you expose DMSO to oxygen, so like if you put it on your skin and it comes in contact with the oxygen in the air, this turns it into dimethyl sulfate instead of sulfone, and which is basically a, a gas. So as a gas, dimethyl sulfate vapors destroy cells in people's eyes, lungs, and mouth. So, you know, she was having trouble breathing and all of that. And it can also cause convulsions delirium and paralysis one of the nurses had paralysis yeah so of the 20 symptoms described by medical staff that night 19 of them match symptoms of people who have exposure to dimethyl sulfate vapors so this theory adds up to the facts of the case dmso cream would explain this cream that doctors noted on ramirez's skin it would also explain the fruity and garlicky odor coming from her mouth The most likely explanation is that Ramirez, or the toxic lady, used DMSO to try to relieve the pain caused by her cancer. Yeah. So, her family claims she didn't use DMSO, but, I mean, it was found on her skin and everything, so it's the most likely culprit. There's not really a lot of, like, explanation as to how it could be there if she hadn't been using it. But, yeah, it just, like, it sucks all around. It's one of those scary things that... I can't imagine happening where something's wrong and in trying to seek treatment for that, I make everyone around me sick. I don't know. I have like a weird phobia of this. But yes, so that is the toxic lady. She's another one that I've always been really fascinated with. 
mm-hmm. because for a long time they had no idea why this happened and just said, oh, mass hysteria, which my next topic will talk about mass hysteria as well. And I'm always been fascinated with that too. So I don't know, but it's, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> my next topic talks about hysteria. Yeah. What? Yeah. I was, Big mood. Uh, that's really, I hadn't heard of her. That's, that's really sad. It is. Uh, well, and like, <sighs> science is scary. Like, use using this cream because it alleviates your pain, but then putting it on your skin means it's going to meet oxygen, which makes vapors, which makes these people sick. Mm-hmm. Like, that. And can you imagine being one of those nurses and going to work and not suspecting a thing and then going into a room and just passing out because you walked into a cloud of gas that you had no way of knowing was a thing like that's just all so scary to me well yeah and like normal people don't understand chemistry so you're not yeah. going to understand that adding oxygen is going to completely change whatever you're working with yeah it's really really scary big, big. oh man all right so bring us back up <laughs> yes please yes since we're talking about hysteria <laughs> All right, so this is what inspired my master's thesis because I began with this topic and I was like, what could I do that somebody else has never done? And it, the answer was like, everybody's already written on this. So I had to I had to go a different direction. So I'm going to talk about the wild history of wombs and hysteria. Woohoo! I love this topic. It's so insane. Oh, okay. So we're going to go way back to like the heyday of the Greeks, right? So we're going way back to where the father of medicine was founding medicine. And what do you think they considered the most dangerous ailment for women? Being a woman. Close. It, they thought that the womb wandered and bumped into shit. And that's what caused all our problems. Oh, that explains so many of my issues. <laughs> Yeah, just wait till I start listing some. We're going to be like, hmm. oh, God. <laughs> All right. This was an ailment that none other than motherfucking philosopher Plato and Hippocrates, a.k.a. Hippocrat- Hippocratic Oath. Hippocratic indeed. <laughs> you know, founder of medicine. They described at length that the womb was mobile. Okay. So, Greek physicians were positively obsessed with the womb. I mean, it's not really hard for me to imagine dudes being obsessed with lady bits, even then. Yeah, no, that's that's a <laughs> ongoing theme. For them, it was the key to explaining why women were so different from men, both physically and mentally. So, this seemed to be something that perplexed them. Why are we so uh, of different? Of course. <laughs> For Hippocrates and his followers, these differences could be explained by a wandering womb. The the physician Aratius of Cappadocia went as far to consider the womb an animal within an animal, an organ that moved itself hither and thither in the flanks. Yikes. (laughs) That's a quote. It sounds like a really bad Dr. Seuss book. (laughs) It does. The womb went hither and the womb went thither. The womb would slither. Okay. 
Um, (laughs) So this living animal is so eager to bear children that if it didn't have a baby inside of it, it would dislodge and then glide throughout the body, causing suffocation, seizures, hysteria, until you put a baby in it. Yeah, I don't like that. I almost called it a meal plan. I don't like that medical plan. (laughs) Or a meal plan. Don't eat your babies. Oh, God. The womb could head upward and downward and left and right to collide with the liver, spleen. Movements argued Eritaeus that manifested in various maladies in women. If it moved up, for instance, the womb caused sluggishness, lack of strength and vertigo. <laughs> and if a woman is pained in the veins on each side of her head, that means the womb is up there bouncing around, you know. I have all of these ailments. I do too. I got a lot of headaches. That yeah, that uterus up there banging around. Insane in the membrane. <sighs> Should a womb descend, there would be a strong sense of choking, loss of speech, and sensibility, and most dramatically, a very sudden, incredible death. Bro. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack here. It says. <laughs> Luckily, the womb has a weakness. <laughs> oh my god. So stupid. I can't even believe this is real. Fucking oh my god. Bad. It delights also in fragrant smells, said Eritaeus, and advances towards them. And it was aversion to foul smells to which it flees from. So oh, next time I next time I feel like my cooter's running away, I'm just gonna put a piece of pie down there. So, you you guessed it. To cure a wandering womb, physicians would lure it back into position with pleasant smells applied to the vagina and drive it away from the upper body by putting really shitty-ass smells up the nose. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks, I hate it. There was a Greek dissenter, though, by the name of Saronis, argued that the womb was not mobile, and that the success of scent therapies was not due to the animalistic organ reacting violently to odors, but it was aromas that caused relaxation and constricting of the muscles. So, ding, 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 finally somebody's speaking specific here. <laughs> yes, thank you, that person. Although I'm sure vapors from the vagina aren't going to, like, relax you. Mm, probably not, but let's, let's find out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> also... Like, a bunch of dudes sitting around, like, talking about lady bits, like, they have one. I mean, this is just something that we have no idea about, right? Like, right. Not, nothing. That's not current events at all. Not at all. All right. So, ready for me to ruin Aristotle for you? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, for the Greeks, the womb was clearly the seat of a woman's wily ways and very much a weakness. According to Aristotle... A woman was just a deformed or a mutilated male. Oh, God. Listen here, Freud. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, he also said that a womb was just a more intimate version of the Achilles heel. So, uh, the there first you go. That- That's it, Aristotle. You're on the fuck you list. Yeah, fuck you, Aristotle. But thankfully, the Romans distanced themselves from this notion of the wandering womb. Smart. Finally, some sense here. With the physician Galen noted 
that while it may seem to be moving, it's actually the tension of the membranes that hold it in place and pull it up slightly. So, yay, Romans! They figured shit out. Yes. Thank you, Romans. The problem, he claimed, (laughs) just goes back down, was suffocation of the wound by a buildup of menstrual blood, or even worse, the female version of the seed that mixed with male sperm Retained seed would proceed to rot and produce vapors that corrupt other organs. So we we were at a high there with Romans, and then they brought she, it back down with some. They dumps. were doing so well, and then they shot the boat. Okay. <laughs> After the fall of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine physician by the name of Paul of Agina, it might be Agina, but I'm gonna say Agina because it rhymes with vagina. Proposed- oh my god, I love it. He proposed an imaginative cure, make the lady sneeze, and no joke, yell at her. Uh, uh, okay. Um, any woman, any <laughs> vagina owner can attest to what it feels like to sneeze while owning a vagina. Mm, but yeah. the yelling would just make me cry. Like... Depends on what part of the cycle we're at. One yes. would have to be very angry and probably like lash out and then I would cry at other parts, but yeah. Or I'd hit you, depending on where I'm at in my life. Right. Also, anybody with a uterus understands what sneezing can do at some points in time, and you don't want to do that. You exactly. You do not. And when the original Greek writings of the womb movement, the gynecia, eventually trickled into the Islamic world, physicians adopted both the concept of the wandering organ and Galen's idea of suffocation. All of this knowledge, and I'm going to use that very loosely, (laughs) arrived in Italy in the 12th century. And for the next several hundred years, much emphasis was put on scent therapy and sneezing as well. By the 1500s, the hysteria tradition was complete. While wombs were no longer thought to wander, they were very much to blame for the irrationability of women. (laughs) I want to know how women survived. I I don't. I don't know. Like, thank you, women of the past, for surviving to get us here to be horrified for you. You breathe. Your uterus is making you crazy. You have an opinion. You're a witch. Yep. That's where I'm at. So how's this for a shocker? The looming threat of a wandering womb was used to assert power over women. One prescription, for example, was for a woman to remain pregnant as often as possible to keep the womb occupied, therefore in its rightful place, and they would prescribe a lot of sex. So. Don't love that. Mm -mm. Yeah. Over the course of the next several thousand years, the womb had become less and less of a way to explain physical ailments. Ailment, ailments. Oh my God. <laughs> the hills are coming out. <laughs> <laughs> ailments and more of a way to explain psychological dysfunctions. <laughs> In the 1700s, the theorized cause of hysteria began to shift from the wound to the brain. But this didn't stop the emergence of the widespread female hysteria commotion of the 19th century, in which countless cures for haywire wombs were peddled on the population, including hypnosis, vibrators, I'm not joking, and blasting a woman in the abdomen with jets of water. Also, not a joke. (laughs) Oh my god. 
And consider those women of the Victorian literature that we all like, you know, what, what literature who were overcome with their emotions and, you know, and not at all suffocating from their courses. They collapsed after announcing that they have a touch of vapors. Yes. Same vapors. And how did they wake those women up? Foul smelling or smelling. (gasps) Oh my God. This all makes sense. now. What? My (gasps) God. What? Yeah. I, like, legitimately thought that a touch of the vapors was, like, I got too hot. Like, <laughs> I got a touch of the vapors, like. The vapors. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, full circle. <laughs> oh, my God. My mind is so blown right now. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Then comes Sigmund Freud, who says, whoa, 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 everybody, calm down. Men can be hysterical, too. Good on you, Freud unpopular opinion but he had it freud in fact attested to experience as much himself and his study of male hysteria eventually informed his famous oedipus complex oh most importantly freud made it abundantly clear that psychological disorders come from the brain and not the womb today what the ancient greeks or romans or arabs would consider hysteria and Let's also remember that hysteria itself is the Greek word for womb is a lot of different psychological disorders from schizophrenia to just panic attacks. So the womb, that organ that so confused all those physicians of the past is now widely appreciated for what, you know, gave birth to all of us. Beautiful. Unless you're Zeus. He gave birth from his head. Uh, Good old Zeus. (laughs) <laughs> the mysteries of male childbirth. <laughs> oh, all right, so we're gonna circle back to hysterica. Hyster- oh, his- what that's is a good? Hysterica? That's a good like twenty twenty uh, first century name for a child. Hysterica. <laughs> uh, hysteria. Victorian era women who experienced everything from the loss of sexual appetite to fatigue. Loss of appetite, fainting, anxiety, sleeplessness, irritability, nervousness, nervousness, mild depression, and I quote, the tendency to cause trouble for others was <laughs> That's diagnosed, me. <laughs> diagnosed with female hysteria. I, I think I have all those. I do too. Yeah. Oh my God. Just like going down the list, checking them off. Also on the list, excessive vaginal lubrication and erotic fantasizing. Because, you know, those weren't normal back then. Women aren't supposed to like sex. Get it together. Uh, It is mind-boggling how little they understood women. Yes. (laughs) Throughout history. All right. And also, not once did one of these dudes ever think for a second, well, maybe women like sex, too. Maybe they have a libido. Witchcraft. Witchcraft. <laughs> Burn the witch. Oh, okay. So, this is my best. This is my favorite part. Okay. More mind-boggling is that the doctors began prescribing manual pelvic massage meant to cause hysterical paroxysm in a patient to cure such maladies. Translation: orgasm. I would like my doctor a lot better. <laughs> No, I, I actually love my doctor, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, at this time, women were thought to have no sex drive. Yeah, you can't enjoy sex. And you can't masturbate, because that's knocking on the devil's doorbell, you know. But, 
to go to the doctor and they do it, that's a prescription. For science. Science. This is the loophole here. Yes. But unfortunately for doctors, hysteria treatment had a downside. Achy, cramped fingers and hands from all that massage. In medical journals from the early 1800s, doctors lamented on treating hysterics and said that they taxed their physical endurance. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> they had chronic hand fatigue, meant that, and it meant that some doctors had trouble maintaining the treatment long enough to produce the desired result. Poor fucking babies. Boo fucking who. But necessity being the mother of invention, physicians began experimenting with medical substitutes for their hands. When they tried a number of genital massage contraptions, among them the water-driven gadgets, the forerunner of the uh, modern shower massage. (laughs) God bless America. (laughs) And they also used pumping steam-driven dildos. Not lying here. Don't love that. Okay. But they found that these machines were cumbersome, messy, and often unreliable, and sometimes dangerous. Yeah, nobody wants to be electrocuted. No one wants steam by their vagina. (laughs) No. So then, in the late 19th century, electricity entered American homes. And for the first time, electrical appliances appeared. They had the electric fan, the toaster, tea kettle, and sewing machines. So in 1880, more than a decade before the electric iron or vacuum, the enterprising English physician, Dr. Joseph Mortimer Granville, also a very British name, indented and patented the electromechanical vibrator. Look, you gotta get the wrinkles out of your system before you can get the wrinkles out of your pants. I I support this. <laughs> Vibrators, both plug-in and later battery-powered, were immediate hits. <laughs> Can't even imagine why. They produced the paroxysm quickly, safely, reliably, and as often as a woman desired. During the early 20th century, doctors lost their monopoly on hysteria treatment as women began buying the shit for themselves. Real yeah. talk. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah. And thanks to advertisements in popular women's magazines, such as Needlecraft, Women's Home Companion, and the Sears and Robot catalog. Which God was bless. The- it was the Amazon of the day. Let's all- oh, you can yeah. buy houses from the Sears and Robux. Real talk. I'm fascinated by Sears Robux old catalogs. Yeah. But to make them more socially acceptable, their real purpose was disguised. They were called personal massagers, which ho, ho, ho. they are still called that today in some places. They are. Yeah. And depending on the model, not that I've studied this a lot, but you know, um, <laughs> Depending on what you get, they are still called personal massagers. And, like, real talk, they are massaging in a sense. That's true. And women and the advertisers knew what these really were. In one 1903 advertisement in the Sears catalog, they had the advertisement, A delightful companion, all the pleasures of youth, will throb you from within. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they just... Got right to that. Okay. They not even sugarcoating that. So electricity gave women home vibrators, but within a few decades, electricity almost took them away. 
Movies were invented in 1890, and by 1891, pornography was being filmed. During the 1920s, vibrators began showing up in these smut films, which stripped the devices of their disguise and quickly made them socially unacceptable. They were on to you! Oh, no! (laughs) Oh, my God. I would be so mad. I would, like, burn down the theater. I would not burn down the theater, just, but I would want to. Goddamn porn. Ruin it for everybody else. Porn ruins everything. I'm sorry. And because of porn, vibrator advertisements disappeared from the consumer media. And vibrators were really hard to find well into the 1970s. But that changed with the feminist movement. Woo! Love you. And around that time, the Hitachi introduced its magic wand, which is still the world's most popular vibrator, apparently. I'm pretty sure that's the one that was featured on Sex in the City. Sex in the City or Sex and the City? I think it's in. It's the Mandela Effect one. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I think it's in. I don't know. I Whichever mean, one you remember, that's the one that yeah. featured Hitachi. Oh, yeah. So today there are several models available. One third of adult American women own at least one. Many own several. And about half of vibrator owners use them in partner sex. So, to think about that, everything we know about vibrators we owe to a physician that bitched about some achy hands. Yep, carpal tunnel led us to this <laughs> poor one out love. Here. Yes. Poor one to this doctor. Yes. Yeah. Also, if you haven't watched it, there is a movie called Hysteria that is about this. And it is actually a really good movie. Yeah, when I was doing research, I, I found like a few reviews on that movie. But yeah, so good. It, I love that movie. I just think it's so funny that like even women's sex toys were only invented to help men. And I'm like, yeah, come on. <laughs> Why are we surprised at this point? I know it's it's <sighs> I'm telling you. But yeah, I think it's really funny. I know that when I started my research, when I found my thesis topic, I started with trying to find out how many women were admitted to Arkansas for hysteria. But then I was like, oh, nobody's ever written on the whole asylum as a whole. So I went the easy route. But yeah, there there was pretty much like either had. uh, Oh, shit. What's the seizure thing? I just blanked out. Epilepsy? Yeah, so it was like epileptics, hysteria. Those were like the main things from beginning. There wasn't a whole lot of broad diagnoses back in the early, early years of insane asylums. But which, while we are on this topic, ladies, gentlemen, non-binary, everyone in between, there is no shame in owning a vibrator. There is no shame in using one, no matter what. No, it's actually good for you. Yeah, so, like, there's a lot of stigma and shame attached to it, but there ain't no shame in the game. Do you? Science. Science, people. It can relieve stress. It can help with pain. Insomnia. Yeah. No. No shame at all. I just think it's fucking hilarious that a dude invented it because his hands hurt. I'm like, oh, come on. Really? Nobody cares about women's feelings. Right. at, At all. Let's be real. Yeah. When I was researching for my thesis... Which I think I mentioned it's on the Arkansas Lunatic Asylum. But, like, men could claim that anything was hysteria if they wanted to get rid of their wives. And the women couldn't do anything because they were technically, you know, property. So, you could just be like, oh, she's hysterical. And they could lock her up. And there was no way for her to get out because she couldn't 
defend herself because the fact that you're defending yourself having an opinion was hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of my favorite short stories, uh, I just blanked out on the author, but it's called The Yellow Wallpaper. And it's about a doctor who his wife has a baby and then he's like, oh, she's hysterical and nervous and needs to be locked up in the attic of the summer home. And being locked up there actually makes her go crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a fantastic story. I've written so many papers on it, but it's it's so good, but so, so sad. It's really sad. I think the first superintendent. Oh, shit. I just said that <laughs> again. So the first superintendent of the Arkansas Lunatic Asylum, his wife was the matron. And then all of a sudden she became hysterical and then she was admitted like, come on, dude. But they didn't keep really good ledgers. So you don't really know. Like you just, all you have to do is say, got to get rid of them. Yep. They're crazy. Oh, I hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. So are you ready to talk about a different kind of hysteria? (laughs) Yes. Okay, excellent. So I have two, because they're kind of short and there's not a ton of stuff on it, I actually have two cases. So we're going to talk a little bit about mass hysteria, which I mentioned in my toxic lady case. But so this is 100% something I feel like would happen to me. (laughs) Uh, And this is the dancing plague of 1518. Oh my God, I love this. It's so fascinating, which um, I am also fascinated by mass hysteria because that is cited in like the Salem witch trials Mm -hmm. stuff like that so the dancing plague of 1518 for those who don't know was a case of dancing mania that occurred in Strasbourg Alsace or Alsace in France in the Holy Roman Empire in July of 1518 around 400 people took to dancing for days without rest and over the period of about one month Some of those affected collapsed or even died of heart attack, stroke, and exhaustion. Oh, my gosh. Which, like, when I get in a dancing mood, I can understand. But I don't think I would dance (laughs) for, like, months or a month. Oh, is it, like, in Hocus Pocus where she puts a spell on them and they have to dance until they, like, die and then they get released from the spell? Yes, that... Or, like, in the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where, like, they just cannot help it and everybody breaks out into song and dance. I love that episode. (laughs) I have that entire soundtrack to that episode memorized. I sing it in my car a lot. Yes. So, the outbreak itself began in July 1518, when a woman, Mrs. Trophia, began to dance fervently in the streets of Strasbourg. This lasted somewhere between four and six days. Within a week, I know, can you imagine just, like, going out there and just dancing for four to six days? Like, I want to know, like, did she take a potty break and everyone was like, oh, thank God, she's finally sitting down. And then she came back to her. Or did she just dance straight? You still do some finger dances while you're peeing, though. Yes, yes. Bring your (laughs) chamber pot out there, pee in the middle of the road. Shimmy. (laughs) Yes. So, within a week, 34 other people had joined. Oh, my. Within a month, there were around 400 dancers, predominantly female, because, of course, they were predominantly female. (laughs) They were hysterical. So some of these people would die from heart attacks and etc. One report indicates that for a period, the plague killed around 15 people per day. Oh, wow. However, the sources of the city of Strasbourg at the time of the events did not mention the number of deaths or even if there were fatalities. So it's kind of word of mouth that people died. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Historical documents, including physician notes, cathedral sermons, local and regional chronicles, and even notes issued by the Strasbourg City Council are clear that the victims danced. It is not known why these people danced, some even to their deaths. As the dancing plague worsened, concerned nobles sought the advice of local physicians, who ruled out astrological and supernatural causes. <laughs> Is that the first thing? Yeah. Aliens. The first thing they went to was, are ghosts doing this, basically, or demons? Instead, they announced that this dancing plague was, the, uh, was a natural disease caused by hot blood. So these hot-blooded individuals were just dancing till they died. (laughs) But, and at this time, if a person had what was called hot blood, one of the quote-unquote like treatments for it was bleeding, where they would cut them Mm -hmm. to let them bleed out a little bit to like lower their the blood heat and all of that. But instead of prescribing bleeding in this case, authorities encouraged more dancing. And in doing so, they opened two guild halls and a grain market and constructed a wooden stage so these people would have more places to dance. So they were like, maybe if we make it like completely, kind of like with little kids, when you tell them not to do something, they do it more. They're like, maybe if we tell them it's completely okay to do this, they'll stop doing it. The authorities did this because they thought that the dancers would recover only if they continuously danced day and night. And to increase the effectiveness of the cure, authorities even paid for musicians to keep the afflicted moving. Which just feels like, oh, this fire is going out. Go get the matches. But okay. So the strategy was a disaster, obviously. (laughs) After those policies were applied, the illness underwent a dramatic growth. Performing dances in more public spaces facilitated the spread of the the, psychic contagion. Um, So historian John Waller, who has, like, written a lot on this, stated that a marathon runner could not have lasted the intense workout that these men and women did hundreds of years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, like, hardcore. Look, I get exhausted halfway through the bunny hop. I don't think I could, like, do this for days and days and days and days, but okay. God, I did a half marathon, and I thought I was going to die. I can't imagine doing something worse than a marathon. I thought I was going (laughs) to die when we did a 5K together. Let's be real. (laughs) Let's be real. So... Here's some theories about what happened. So modern theories include food poisoning caused by a psychoactive chemical product of ergot fungi, which is a type of mushroom that grows commonly on grains in the, or not a, not a mushroom, it's, it's a fungus that grows on um, grains in the wheat family like rye, which is used for baking bread. Ergotamine is the, the, it's the psychoactive product of this, and it's structurally related to the drug LSD. Oh. Uh, they were having a rager. Like a yeah, rager. so basically they, like, were hopped up on LSD, and so, yeah, the, it's lysergic acid diethylamide, which I, I learned something because I didn't, I just always heard it called LSD. I never heard it called that so i mean it yeah. makes sense if you think about lsd you think people with their glow sticks out there dancing right like and here's how i found out about this so the same fungus has been implicated in other major historical anomalies including the salem witch trials huh. and i don't know if it was also because of the the contaminated wheat in the salem witch trials i thought they said it was in the water but I could be wrong on that, so don't hold me to that. But anyway, so this guy Waller, um, 
argues that this theory does not seem tenable since it is unlikely that those poisoned by argot could have danced for days at a time. Nor would so many people have reacted to the psychotropic chemicals in the same way. The ergotism theory also fails to explain why virtually every outbreak occurred somewhere along the Rhine and Moselle rivers, areas linked by water but with quite different climates and crops. So, I originally thought that this only happened in one town. This happened in, like, several places, and it spread, like, well, like the plague. And, um, and it followed these waterways. So, this scientist is kind of like, eh, or this historian, what, whatever he is, yes. Um, <laughs> um, there's a huge difference between a historian and a scientist. <laughs> yes, yes. He's one of those, yes. No, he's definitely a historian, I just can't read. So... Most of the regions that this was seen in didn't didn't share the same crop type. So it's not likely that their crops would hold the same fungus. So this historian actually speculates that it was a stress-induced psychosis. Because at this time, like, famine was really bad. There was so much disease. And people were just so completely stressed out at all times that it was like... I'm just going to go dance for a minute for stress. And then someone else was probably like, I think I'm going to go dance too. And then by the 50th person, they're like, I don't know why these people are dancing, but I'm going to do it with them. And um, so, yeah, so it just kind of escalated. <laughs> that escalated quickly. I do that when I'm stressed. 30 second dance party. Yep. Yep. Same thing. But I only do it for 30 seconds. I wouldn't do it for days. Real talk. But yeah, and also... People in this area tended to be, like, very superstitious, so they thought that maybe it was the supernatural, because, of course. And then, apparently, there were seven other cases of the dancing plague reported in the same region. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it, it spread. Yeah, so this is mostly, mostly chalked up to mass hysteria. I don't know what show it was, but I remember seeing it where they... It was kind of like one of those prank shows where they... Had someone, like the unsuspecting person, go sit in a waiting room full of people. And when a certain tone was played over the intercom, all the people in there would stand up. And then when it played again, they would sit down. And after a few times, the person that was like the unsuspecting victim would start standing up with them. And then they'd send another person in. And then that person, not understanding why everyone was standing up, would stand up. And sit down and then like they'd cycle people out. So all of a sudden it was only people who didn't know what was going on going ahead and standing up because everyone else was standing. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It's really fascinating. So yeah. Mob mentality. Yes. It's very much mob mentality, which scares the crap out of me. Oh, God. That was like the worst part. I took a class at evolutionary psychology and mob mentality was in there about like what people are willing to do with the mob idea like if one person starts something everybody jumps in because you don't want to be the one person that's not doing it yep humans do some shitty things when they feel like it's a mob (laughs) yeah when they feel like they're not going to be called out for their shitty behavior yeah like people do some terrible things oh we had to learn about the suicides like people that will start egging people on to jump and stuff it was horrible yeah it's so bad there's even an artist um think her first name is marina i forgot her last name but she did a art installation where she stood she stood naked in a plaza and there was a table in front of her that had like roses and a pair of scissors 
and markers and a gun and all this laid out. And she just stood there silently and people could come up. And at first people would come and just like move her arm or move her hair and she remained motionless. But then people started like cutting her hair off or like digging the thorns of the roses into her skin or holding like the gun to her head like they were going to shoot her. And then once she started walking towards them, everybody scattered. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, as long as they had a passive participant there and nobody was stopping them from doing bad things, they would continue doing it. But as soon as she did something to indicate that she was going to no longer be passive, everyone ran. Oh, that's so scary. It's so fucked oh. up. It, uh, it, it scares me. It scares me so much that this is a thing that people can just do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, mass, mass hysteria, it's... Exhibiting the same bizarre behavior that it can go, you know, small groups up to almost a thousand people, more than that. You know, it builds and builds and builds on itself. The behavior it spreads really rapidly and it's pretty, it's, it's an epidemic when it happens. So the sufferers are primarily adolescent females, which is why they think that this is what happened with the Salem witch trials. So yeah, it just... It snowballs in adolescent females. This kind of comportment could have been caused by the elevated levels of psychological stress down there. And this is especially like it can happen in teenage girls because of this, because, you know, teens, your teen years are so despairing and just fraught with emotion. And it's such such a heightened emotion that you can like slip into this. Mm -hmm. So this psychogenic illness could have created a choreo, which is Greek for to dance, a situation comprising random and intricate unintentional movements that flip from body part to body part. Diverse choreas like St. Vitus's dance, St. John's dance, and Tarantism was labeled in the, were labeled in the Middle Ages, referring to the independent epidemics of dan- dancing mania that happened in Central Europe, particularly at the time of the plague. So, and that's another thing for me, like, I don't, it blows my mind that these people were all like suffering from the plague, but we're still like, I'm going to go out and dance. But they were just so like cracked from being stressed. So here is another example of mass psychogenic illness or mass hysteria. And this is the Tanga Nyika Tang. Oh my God, guys, words are so hard. Tanga Nyika laughter epidemic. So this was in 1962. And this occurred in the village of Kush. Kashasha on the western coast of Lake Victoria in the modern nation of Tanzania, which was formerly known as this Tanganyika, which is near the border of Uganda. So the laughter epidemic began on January 30th of 1962, so much more current, at a mission-run boarding school for girls in Kashasha. It started with three girls and spread throughout the school, affecting 95 of the 159 pupils aged 12 to 18. Symptoms lasted from a few hours to 16 days. The teaching staff were unaffected and reported that students were unable to concentrate on their lessons, and so the school had to be closed on March 18th. The epidemic spread to Nishamba, which is a village where several of the girls lived. In April and May, 217 young villagers had laughing attacks. The, which, this is, this blows my mind, too. Because, like... One of the creepy things for me in scary movies is when kids just start, like, giggling uncontrollably for no reason. (laughs) So they did this for, like, 16 days. So that's a thing. The Kashasha School reopened on May 21st and then reclosed at the end of June. 
Earlier that month, the lapping, oh, lapping, the laughing epidemic <laughs> spread to Romashenye Girls Middle School near Bukoba and affected 48 girls. So this was like skipping school to school. The Kashasha school was sued for allowing the children of their parents to transmit it to the surrounding areas, which it's not like this is a sexually transmitted disease. Laughing yeah. is not, but okay. Uh, that so is crazy. Yeah, so other schools like Kashasha and other villages were affected to some degree. 18 months after it started, the phenomenon finally died off. The laughter reports were widely accompanied by descriptions of fainting, flatulence, respiratory <laughs> problems, rashes, crying, and screaming. <laughs> Look, if I laughed that long, I'd probably have gas too. Let's just, let's just put it all out there. Oh, God, that's so funny. <laughs> In all, 14 schools were shut down and 1,000 people were affected. That is so, that is such a large number of people. Right, which, okay, little, little side note. So I had a teacher in high school who said that when she was in high school in California in the 70s, one of her classes, they didn't, they had a surprise test and they didn't want to take it. So she faked losing her contacts because this was right around when contacts first came out and they were really expensive. She mm-hmm. faked one of them popping out, even though she didn't even have contacts. And they spent the whole class searching the school for her fake contact so she could get out of the test. So I'm like picturing a bunch of like 12 year old girls being like, if we laugh uncontrollably, we don't have to take a test. And then it just spreads into this huge thing. That sounds more realistic to me. Yeah. Anyway, so causes Christian Hempelman, which is quite the last name of uh, Purdue University, theorized that the episode was also stress induced, which 100% I will admit If I get to a certain point where I'm so incredibly stressed out, I will laugh. Like, I will launch into a giggle attack. Mm -hmm. So I guess I can understand this. Like, I will laugh so hard I cry. And my husband will be like, why are you, why are you laughing? Why are you crying? And I'm just like, I don't know. So I can see, like, I can see this happening. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes when something's really horrible, like, I don't know how to process it. Sometimes I laugh awkwardly in, like, the worst situation ever. And I'm like, why am I laughing? But sometimes it's just like a weird, I guess some, I mean, it's normal. I know a lot of people do it. It's a stress response. Yeah, yeah. it's a stress response. So this is just a stress response that went insane. So like, apparently in 1962, this area had just won its independence. And Mm -hmm. students had reported feeling stressed because of the higher expectations from teachers and parents. Oh, okay. I was about to ask you, like, why were they that stressed? <laughs> yeah. So um, mass hysteria like this is usually occurs in people without a lot of power. So people who, like, don't feel like they really have a say in their situations or are just, like, stuck in this life, they are more likely to suffer from mass hysterias. So mass hysteria is a last resort for people of low status, and it's an easy way for them to express that something is wrong. Huh. Which is interesting. So, yeah. uh Makes sense to me. Yeah. So sociologist Robert Bartholomew and psychiatrist Simon Wesley both put forward a culture-specific epidemic hysteria hypothesis. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Really say five times fast. (laughs) Yeah. Pointing out that the occurrences in 1960s Africa were prevalent in missionary schools and in Tanzanian society that was ruled by strict traditional elders. So the likelihood is that the hysteria was a manifestation of the cultural dissonance between the traditional conservatism at home and the new ideas challenging those beliefs in school, which they termed conversion reactions. 
Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's only two of the cases I found, but there are a ton of cases of mass hysteria. Like, it's concerning how many cases of mass hysteria there are. Huh. But, yeah. That's really interesting. If we ever do a psychology theme, we could do some yes. more. <laughs> Hell yes. Yes, yes, Yeah, yes. hysteria has always been very interesting to me, especially it's the whole... Uh, the human brain is wild, guys. It's, it's wild. Yeah, it's a lawless place. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff, like I said, I took the class, it was evolutionary psychology, which you might think at first, why would evolutionary wise, why would we be like that? But it's survival. We don't necessarily have to survive the same stuff we did at the beginning of time. But yeah, you had to work as a team and you had to be part of that mob to survive. So therefore, our brains are still programmed to self-preserve by going along with the crowd and yeah there's safety in numbers so you automatically assume that you have to be with the crowd to survive and it's it's crazy yeah it's very nuts i although i'm sure every person out there listening is like i'm not like that i wouldn't do that everybody says that but when it comes down to it (laughs) we all say it but let's be real (laughs) something can trigger it for everyone yeah I, I, I like to think that I've been in a few situations like working with the public where I went against the crowd to stop something, but I was the authoritative figure. Yes. So yes. it's different. So I don't know what would happen if I'm not the authoritative person. But, but like the people out here, out here who are listening and that are like, oh, that would never happen to me. Have you ever stayed up way too late with a friend and one of you starts laughing and then the other one starts laughing? <laughs> And you try to stop, but every time you make eye contact, you start laughing again. And yeah. you keep saying, don't look at me. I have to stop laughing. Keena and I have done it. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. There's a lot of times that Keena and I cannot make eye contact, even through a screen, because we know <laughs> we'll make the other laugh or vice versa. I couldn't look at her during the butt plug segment. Oh my god. That's... <laughs> I'm scarred. I'm scarred. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, it happens. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. I highly recommend going to, like, the Psychological Association website and reading some stuff about, like, mob mentality and mass hysteria because it's fascinating. And uh, they've actually gotten to where they write their articles, like, really funny so that they're not all dry and, like, scientific-y. Yes. Part of my hysteria um, segment came from the Psychological Association's website, and they they had some jokes. I was really surprised. (laughs) I know, yeah. When I was when I was reading about Freud, I was like, okay, they got jokes. They do. They've made it very uh, contemporary where you can stomach it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Falling asleep. All right, so we're gonna end with morbid AF, but coincidentally, it's probably like the least morbid thing that Ashley's talked about. So <laughs> I like I keep topping you on the morbid. Like you go up for like to put the ball in the hoop. And I just, like, smack it out of your hands. It's true. I have been very weak, but I, uh... <laughs> I feel very on brand right now. <laughs> you know, I'm such a wuss. I mean, a lot of medical history is really depressing, so I wanted to... I didn't want to get too dark. Let me pour my drink. Okay. Pour a drink. <laughs> <laughs> There's the ASMR for you. All right, so we're going to talk about the gruesome history of eating corpses as medicine. Oh, oh 
Yes, this ties back to our Egypt episode, right? Yeah, yeah, Egypt and cannibals and all kinds of stuff. So, and our food episode, it will tie back to that too. So. Oh, wow. So, corpse medicine, also known as medicinal cannibalism, did not make that up, is an act of using parts of deceased humans for medical reasons. Technically, this still persists today because we do have organ transplants and blood transfusions. So, technically, we are using corpses for medicine today. Do Does women eating their placentas after birth count as cannibalism? I'm not sure because you're not... I mean, yeah. I mean, you don't have to be dead to be a cannibal, I guess. You're yeah. Other people. So, yeah, I, I guess that, that from The Walking be. Dead, yes. <laughs> I'm assuming, yeah, that would be medical cannibalism because they eat it for supposed health benefits, which have not been proven ever. So, I don't know how I feel about that. To eat your own. If you want to eat your own placenta, that's cool. But have you ever seen a placenta? Why do you want to eat that? Yeah, I like... I don't know if you would go, like, the Hannibal route and fry it up with, like, some fava beans and a nice Chianti, but, um... Uh, <laughs> oh. I think a lot of people freeze-dry it. And put it in pills. I think that's what the Kardashians did. It is what the Kardashians did. Where Sorry. Okay. However, in the past, corpses were used for a wide variety of medical purposes and were thought to be able to cure everything from bleeding... To epilepsy. So, back to epilepsy. Okay. So, today, nobody's going to be snorting mummies or mainlining randos blood, which I'm hoping I'm using mainlining right, because I thought of it as a joke, and I'm like, I don't know how to do drugs, so I don't know if I said that right. I also don't do the drugs, <laughs> so I don't... I don't know. Like, I'm trying I'm trying to, like, flashback to every intervention I've ever watched. I know. I watch a lot of TV, and I think that's been a joke that's been had, but that if you just... I thought there mainlining you. was, like, guzzling something. Like, you mainline a beer. I don't well, know. I Listeners like- who know what mainlining <laughs> is in terms of drugs, please write in and tell us. <laughs> or don't do drugs. All right, so, anyhow, according to one historian who was featured in a Smithsonian article that I got a lot of this from, the question was never, should you eat human flesh? It was more like, what sort of human flesh should you eat? Yikes, Smithsonian, okay. All right, so the answer to the first is the Egyptian mummy. That's, that's who you should eat. So, when it was ground up and eaten, it was called mummia. Okay. Like we said earlier, that was totally mentioned in episode five. And if you haven't listened to that, you should go back. So shameless plug. Yes, yes. we'll wait. We'll wait. Go ahead. Boom. Egypt. Okay. <laughs> so mummy people parts were multi-purpose. A dried heart could cure epilepsy. A skin from the mummy could stop bleeding and restore the flesh. And dry gallbladder powdered and mixed with some wine could help deafness. Yikes. I don't I don't think that's accurate. I don't think so either. My mom is currently suffering from some tinnitus, so here you go, mom. <laughs> I, I have that too. Maybe I'll go put some wine in my ears. Also, also, has anyone seen that in medical advance- advancements now, tilapia skin, like the fish, has been used to treat burn victims? Huh, I think I've heard the fish. I didn't know it was tilapia. Yes, it's tilapia. Sorry, anyway, go on. I'm starting to, like, derail. Anyway. Anyway, 
Skull was one of the most common ingredients. It was taken in powder to cure head ailments. So, headaches. Thomas Willis, who was a 17th century pioneer of brain science, brewed a drink for apoplexy or bleeding that mingled powdered human skull and chocolate. You know, I try it. <laughs> I mean, I know that it's English, but if you think back to our episode four, when I talked about the Aztecs that mixed blood and chocolate, that was like the 1300s. So the idea of mixing things with chocolate has been around for a really long time. Isn't that a book title, Blood and Chocolate? It is. I don't think it's related. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's probably, I was like, it's probably French. I, I didn't mean that insulting one. <laughs> <laughs> I just vaguely remember it having like an Eiffel Tower or something. I don't know. Anyway. Oh, God, I've just lost my damn mind. A, another example of skull consumption was King Charles II of England, who sipped what he called the King's Drops which was a personal tincture containing human skull and alcohol. So that might be my thing. I'll try it. <laughs> Put it in the right kind of booze. I might be, I might be down. Truth. I was thinking like rubbing alcohol and I was like, eh, but no, that makes more sense. Put it in a cocktail. I wouldn't know. So this one I found pretty interesting. I saw like a little snippet of people talking about it and then I had to Google it. So in medieval times, a snea. And it's from the Arabic word for moss, because at that point, moss and lichens hadn't been distinguished. But it was the apothecary's name for a prized ingredient that they used for a lot of ailments. But it was called skull moss, was like the common term for it. Okay. And it was the mold or mildew that grew upon the unburied human skull. Preferably, they used that of criminals that were hung in chains. So they would go to the skull, scrape off the mold, and it'd be worth its weight in gold. Oh, thanks. I hate it. Yeah. And then they would use it for nosebleeds, epilepsy, and head wounds. I don't, I don't love this. Okay. Like, so I Googled, <laughs> but I looked at some photos, but even like animal skulls haven't been buried. There's this little green moss that grows on it. But yeah, they'd grind it up into a little mist and they'd use it for medicine. I didn't All think right. about criminals until I read this. Because at first it was like human skulls, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, are they digging up dead people? But no, this is people that haven't been dug up. But it's just some sort of lichen that only attaches to bones. Yeah, did not know that. That's cool. And of course, since mummies were such a fashionable medicine, it was often hard to get. There was only a limited amount of mummies in the world, so Africa, basically, was the most prized, and it was also the most well-known, especially during, like, 19th century and before. This was when people were just consistently taking the treasures of Egypt and shipping it to Europe, which is just heartbreaking to think about how many mummies... I. All I can think of is these people had to have completely dissociated the idea that these were humans. Yeah. Like, and that just breaks my heart. But when humans became short supply, Edward Taylor, a 17th century Puritan, and he was follower of Periclesis. He was a, a uh, Switzerland medical pioneer that we'll talk about in a little bit. But he decided that he was going to create this way to create his own mummies. So this is a quote from his book. Take the fresh, 
unspotted cadaver of a red-headed man because the blood is thinner and the flesh is more excellent. That's oddly specific, but okay. Aged about 24, even more specific, who has been executed and or died a violent death. Huh. Let the corpse lie one day and night in the sun and moon, but the weather must be good. Cut the flesh in pieces and sprinkle it with myrrh and just a little bit of aloe, and then soak it in spirits of wine for several days. Hang it up for six to ten hours, and this will be similar to smoked meat, and it will not stink. In my head, all I can hear is, cut my flesh into pieces. (laughs) (laughs) And then afterwards, after this smoked meat has been released, you have your bone, and then you can create your uh, skull moss. So he's essentially saying if you smoke a person like you would like a wild boar or whatever, it's essentially the same as a mummified person, but just faster. And then like you can grind them. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, I don't know how to not be horrified. But yeah, so. But he was the first person to be like, we don't need to steal some mummies. We can just make our own. Just find your redhead at this 24 years old. Hey, so like, are you 24? Have you died of a terrible death? Do we have a job for you? Real talk. That's like how Beetlejuice goes. <laughs> All right. So uh, moving on to something that I have a lot of. Human fat. <laughs> I thought you meant dead bodies. Okay, go on. <laughs> so it was used to treat the outside of the body, which I guess is a little bit better than ingesting it. German doctors, for instance, would prescribe bandages soaked in human fat for wounds. And then they would rub fat into the skin for a remedy for gout. I feel like that's counterproductive, but okay. Yeah, well, I'm assuming they didn't have the knowledge of what causes gout. True. Okay. So, moving on to blood. Yay! Yay! Blood was procured as fresh as possible. And... Because it was so fresh, they thought it still contained the vitality of life from the body. This requirement made it challenging to acquire, obviously, because you just don't have a steady faucet of human beings around. So the 16th century German-Swiss physician Periclesis that I talked about before believed blood was good for drinking. And one of his followers suggested taking blood from a living body. So he was the first person to be like, we don't got to wait for it to die. Let's just take some from some living. So, my first thought was vampire, obviously. Yes. yes. My first thought was Elizabeth (laughs) Bathory, but then vampire. (laughs) So, I did Google, and there is a book by a historian. It's called Making of a Vampire, and combines Flag the Impaler, Periclesis, uh, Rabbi Lowe, St. Germain, and Dracula. So, this historian says that all of them together are what created the popular myth of vampire, but I'm not going to into that, because I assume we're going to do a vampire episode. Oh, fuck yeah, we yeah. are. <laughs> so, I left that alone. Alright. But, what do you do if you're poor? What? So, obviously the poor couldn't afford all these, you know, expensive ways of getting living blood. So, they got the benefits of cannibal medicine by standing by at executions. <sighs> okay. They would pay a small amount for a cup of still warm blood of the condemned. No. <laughs> no. Do do they like pass it around in a ladle? I mean, 
I guess if they got the money, because they were paying for it. Oh, don't like that. So, the thing that I found fascinating about this is that the executioner himself became considered as, like, a healer in some Germanic countries. And at the same time, he was still a social leper, because somebody wants to hang out with the executioner, you know. But they became these, like, magical, medical you know givers of life to these people that's like counterproductive though like they take they give life and take it away like god yeah yeah i found that really interesting and i didn't know about that so neither and then if you preferred your blood cooked because i don't know why you wouldn't (laughs) she's already shaking her head no a 1679 recipe from the franciscan apothecary describes how to make it into marmalade what i was expecting blood sausage <laughs> no marmalade <laughs> Ooh, uh, okay it's even worse somehow worse that is yeah when i was in ireland all of the like hotels we stayed in in their breakfast buffet they had blood sausage and i was like nope not doing that <laughs> uh yeah i luckily didn't have that experience in ireland i just remember eating a shit ton of potatoes a shit ton of potato bread and a shit ton of potato soup. Because that yep. was like the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. And I just wouldn't stop eating it. All of those and lamb stew are what I oh. can, like subsisted on when I was in Ireland. Because it was all delicious. Mm-hmm. Alright, so... Assuming human remains fit with the leading medical theories of the day, it emerged from homeopathic ideas. So the idea is that the homeopathic, so you're going to ground up a skull for pains in the head. So they assume that whatever part of the body you're eating, that ails you. And I don't know if I mentioned my dad was a homeopathic doctor. (laughs) Did he grind up skulls? He did not. So he was a doctor of nepropathy, which I think their motto is help your body help itself. So it was like manipulation, kind of like a chiropractor will pop your back to like help everything. He did all that, but he didn't do x-rays and all that bullshit that chiropractors do. No offense if you're a chiropractor, but I just think that professor better. But not once where they're like, your head hurts, let's get some skull. So, um, And if you're a homeopathic doctor that does that today, yikes. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't tell us. We don't want to be associated. Yeah, no thanks. We've touched on this on a few episodes, but human remains were always considered very potent because they were thought to contain the spirit of the body from which they were taken. Like, I don't understand the justification. Are you, like, taking that person's soul into your body and then when you die, you both go to rest? I don't know. I just, I don't feel like they considered what they were doing to the people that were dead. And sometimes the blood of young men was preferred. Sometimes it was virginal young women. By adjusting corpse materials, one gains the strength that the person consumed. And one of the most notable quotes about this was from Leonardo da Vinci, who said, We preserve our life with the death of others. In a death thing insensate, life remains which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. Yikes. Okay. That is a theory I do not like. I do not love that. Mm -mm. Not at all. So this idea of drinking blood and stuff wasn't a renaissance thing. Romans drank the blood of slain gladiators to absorb the vitality of strong strong young men. 15th century philosopher Marcello Ficino suggested drinking blood from the arm of a young person for similar reasons. 
Many healers in other countries, including the ancient Mesopotamia and Indian cultures, believed in the usefulness of human body parts. Even at the corpse medicine peak, two groups were demonized for relating behaviors that were considered savage and cannibalistic. So I found this incredibly fascinating. So at this time that people are using bodies for medicine, they were saying that Catholics and Native Americans were wrong for what they did. So it's okay to use bodies for, you know, your blood and your skulls and whatever. That's okay. But they decided to attack these other groups. Of course. So the first group was Catholics. Protestants condemned them for their belief belief in transubstantiation, which is the blood and wine taken during Holy Communion, communion, where they thought through God's power it changed it into the body and blood of Christ, which people still practice today. And the other group was Native Americans. So these negative stereotypes about them were justified by the suggestion that these groups practice cannibalism and that's just pure hypocrisy at this point. Just because they're Native Americans, what they do is not the same as what you're doing. Even though Native Americans ceremonies are way more religious than what people are doing for medicine. So Beth A. Conklin, a cultural and medical anthropologist, which sounds like a real badass job, honestly. For real. Um, and she's at Vanderbilt University. So a big hib hib. She's written and studied about cannibalism in the Americas. That people of the time knew that corpse medicine was made from human remains, but through some mental transubstantiation of their own, these consumers refused to see the cannibalistic implications of their own practices. So, yes, they are eating people, but they're looking at Catholics and Native Americans being like, what are you doing? You're eating people. So it's just a complete mind block at this point. Coughlin finds there's a distinct difference between European corpse medicine and the New World cannibalism she studied. The one thing that we know is that almost all non-Western cannibal practice is deeply social in a sense that the relationship between the eater and the one that has been eaten matters. In European process, that was largely erased and made it irrelevant. Human beings were reduced to simple biological matter equivalent to any other kind of medicine. So that's what she's saying. That's the difference is that if you're Catholic or Native American, you know who you're eating. That matters. That's significant. It means that's the whole purpose. But for people practicing medicine, they're like, it's not a person anymore. It's just medicine. So they've done this complete mental block. That is insane. Blows my mind. The hypocrisy was not entirely missed. In Michael de Montaigne's 16th century essay, On the cannibals, for instance, he writes of cannibalism in Brazil as no worse than Europe's medical version and compares both favorably to the savage massacres of religious wars. As science strode forward, cannibal remedies died out. The practice dwindled around the 18th century, which is about the same time they started using forks and using soap for bathing, which, if you haven't thought of that, they didn't bathe before then either, so... Think about that. Have you ever thought about Europe? You're like, I want to go back in time. And then you're like, nobody bathed. Nobody knew what soap was. Yeah, they dumped <laughs> their chamber pots into the street. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. There are some late examples of corpse medicine. In 1847, an Englishman was advised to mix the skull of a young woman with molasses and feed it to his daughter to cure her epilepsy. And uh, 
It is noted that he did obtain the compound and administered, but it didn't do anything. So, no shit. No shit. (laughs) A belief that a magical candle made from human fat called a thieves candle, it was said to stupefy and paralyze a person, lasted until the 1880s. So, 1880s, people still thought that a candle made of human fat could do that. That's very, that's very close to now. And apparently, according to Hocus Pocus, if a virgin lights it, then it's the black flame <laughs> candle and it brings the witches back to life. Hell yeah. Bringing back to Hocus Pocus. Hell yes. Yes. Okay. Mummy was actually sold as medicine in German medical catalogs to the beginning of the 20th century. Uh. And in 1908, a last known attempt was made in Germany to swallow the blood at the scaffold. That is horrifying. That is way too recent for my taste. Like, my great-grandpa was born in 1902. So, like, this was still a thing when my great-grandpa was alive. Yeah. Like a kid. Yeah. I do want to add that most of the sources that I used, um, Louise Noble's Medicinal Cannibalism in the Early Modern English Literature and Culture, and then Richard Suggs, who works at the University of Durham in England, his book Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians to the Smith oh, not to the Smithsonian and the Smithsonian (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god What is wrong with me? I can read. Kind of blows my mind I think the differentiation between one culture and the other Europeans being like oh, you guys are all savages but let's go munch on our mummies right now that's what she said. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just the hypocrisy of being like, we're eating dead people for medicinal purposes, but it's fine. But you're eating dead people and it's gross. Like, what? Yeah. I I think I was more shocked with them, like, shaming the Catholic Church for what they yeah. believe in. I'm like, um, I don't understand. Do not compute. Do like, not compute. Even Native Americans, everything they do is just religious and sacred. That yeah. seems to be far more acceptable than corpse medicine to me. Man. Special. I'm pretty sure there's still some tribes in the Amazon that still practice some forms of cannibalism, but it's a sacred ritual and it's part of ingesting your loved one. So it's a way of keeping them with you forever. But do not I put mean, me down for that. It's actually really beautiful if you, like, hear the whole story. I'll probably do it sometime. Yeah, I took a really cool class. One of my professors was really into Amazon rock art, so he always told us about tribes and stuff. But That's yeah, cool. Very, uh, I mean, some of us want to be cremated. Some of us want to, you know, be buried. Some of us want to live forever and be ingested by our loved ones. Yep. That, to each. That, yeah, to each their own. To each their own. Cool. Yeah. That was... <laughs> Far less morbid than I was expecting it to be. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's more because you're eating people, but. Yes. You totally won this one. <laughs> yes. I am like <sighs> reigning champ of the morbid lately. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on my resume. You should. You should. But yeah. So I guess that concludes episode 13, right? 13. Yes. 13. I have to like fact check. Medical yes. history. And thank you, Patreon, for voting this as yes. our topic. And then we have, speaking of Patreon, a shout out this week. 
We have a new Patreon member in our Majestic tier, Majestic AF, and that is Taylor P. She's a wonderful person. I know her too. Um, Casey that I mentioned in our Extra AF episode that gave us a personal story. Me and her and Taylor all went to the same church and grew up together, and they're all lovely people. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Taylor. I don't know you, but I'm glad to uh, have you around. Y'all would love each other. Yay! Makes me so happy. So if you want to join our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash historicalafpod. Okay, I had to do a question mark because I could not remember. (laughs) Yeah, and if you go in there and check it out, it has has everything that we've done so far, but it's all blacked out until you become a member. But you can see everything that we post. We do bloopers and our drunk dives are really fun. And we do book lists and bucket lists. And I put a lot of deleted scenes and outtake stuff <laughs> i do a lot of deletes we go on a lot of tangents i don't know if you've noticed that but so sorry we go on more tangents than we put on the main episodes so all the other imagine stuff imagine that <laughs> yes everything else goes on patreon so it's really fun but if you want to go ahead and follow us on social media we are historical af pod at on instagram facebook and twitter so please yes. join us we are very active and we post stuff and We'd love it for you guys to uh, follow us and talk to us and ask us questions. Yes, we love we love talking to people. We spend way too much time online talking to people. <laughs> so yes, please follow us. And then if you want some of our merchandise, give it a check on shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical AF pod. Yeah. And if you have a story that you want to tell us, do you have somebody cool in your family? Do you have a cool legend or history of your hometown have you been somewhere really cool and historical let us know email us at historicalafpod at gmail.com and we'll read that on our extra af episode yes yes so many cool things we love hearing from you guys so please give us your stories please talk to us on instagram and facebook and twitter we love you yeah, and keep on reviewing us on in- or not Instagram, on Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, all that good stuff. It really helps us become more visible, and then we can have more people and more more opportunities to give you cool content. So, yes, 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 yes. I love all this. Yay! Love all <laughs> so yeah, have a great week. By the time not next ep- next time we <laughs> record, words are hard. Look, okay, words are hard. Next time we talk to y'all, I will have gone down to visit Kina and done all kinds of cool stuff. So y'all will get to hear all about that. Yeah, and follow I'm super us pumped. on uh, social media to see stuff because I'm sure we'll be posting our adventures. We will. We will indeed. We'll have a good week. All right. Bye. Love you guys. Bye, love. <laughs>